Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan, along with guest co-host. That sounds weird. Guest co-host. Yeah, guest, that sounds weird. Well, no, Malik has been has been guest co-host. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's it sounds weird. Segue. It's with guest co-host. Let's bring him. Okay. <laughs> Malik, that means you're listening Malik, to Fault Happy Lines. Monday and Malik Abdul is here. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chad. With guest co-host Malik Abdul. There we go. There you go. Um, before because it sounds weird to be to be like. And guest co it's like, what? What? What, what just well, happened? I figure what it sounds happened? it sounded weird to do it after the the drum beat. Yeah. Where it's like we're announcing the host and guest co-host, and then you know, rather than separate the Yeah. The people. Uh-huh. Yes, Rumblers, we produce on air. <laughs> As we go live. Um so uh, can we announce this? Sure. Okay. Malik is going to be at Trump's Announcement. Special announcement. Inside the gate. Inside Mar-a-Lago. Inside Mar-a-Lago. I won't be just standing outside. Ah! I'll be there with everyone else down there. That is awesome. So cool. Yes. So whatever that special announcement is, we would find out. Malik will be on the screen. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Right now is just a special announcement. Hold on, guys. Is there any chance it's not Trump saying, I'm in? No. Any chance? I don't think so, but no. who knows? It's Trump, right? I wouldn't right. be going down. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. It's like, I just wanted you guys to know my chili recipe. But I was coming out. It was like, Special I came down here for that. But I'll, So I'll be reporting definitely on Wednesdays to yeah. follow up. You know, things that I heard and learned and saw. And uh, that should be super very cool. 80 degree weather. Oh, is, is it that really, warm? It's 34 right now in Washington, D.C. So, This is what wow. my uncle says stuff like that. It was like, yeah, it's chilly down here. It's like 70 degrees. It's like, it's get 68. out of here. Yeah, get out of here. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize. I thought everybody was going through a cold snap on the on the eastern seaboard. Not so much. Not down there. Not in Miami, huh? Well. Or where is it? Um, West Palm Beach. West Palm Beach. Oh, you're going to be on the beach. Oh, yeah. boy. Oh, close to it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A lot warmer than here. Yes. Let's get to headlines. All right, let's get to the headlines. Actually, I'm going to add one story ahead, ahead of what the headlines that we have posted is that there was a school shooting. I saw that. Overnight at UVA, University yeah. of Virginia. Three people are dead, multiple people injured. The shooter is still at large. They've identified him. I forget his name at the moment because this is off the dome. Yeah. But Wasn't he a black guy? Young black man. I, it looks like the photo they presented is like a college photo. Mm-hmm. Like you know, the, uh, so like he may the, have been younger. Like I mean, yeah, the, yeah, college age. Yeah. Um, but the photo that the news, mainstream media, American news, is showing a photo of a young African American man smiling ear to ear, wearing a shirt and tie. It's like super creepy. At so that it point. looks yeah. like he might like you know how athletes, college athletes, in their there. Oh, their, I see. Know, I see. He yeah. looks like. He looks like he might be an athlete. He looks like a fit young man. Do they know why? Don't know. No but indication. The hmm. shelter in place was was put down since the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the guy is apparently on the loose. So, and you know, not that long ago, a, a young man also, I think, where was it? In Florida? Where, oh no, no, North Carolina. 
the young man that was on the loose on a shooting spree that was live on Facebook mm-hmm. Live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same thing, shelter in place near a college area. Yeah. So, very scary. Uh, so, yeah, we should put that out there. There is a shelter in place order um, in, oh, in, and around, in and around Charlottesville because the young man is considered oh, armed, he's still on the loose. Still armed on the and loose. dangerous. The young man is on the loose. And, uh, yeah, he's probably not smiling ear to ear like in the photo. So, considered armed and dangerous, folks in the Charlottesville area, uh, beware. Uh, Then the other main story, happening way on the other side of the world, the U.S. president and Chinese president meeting over on the sidelines ahead of the start of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. President Biden reportedly stating that Beijing and Washington should overcome their differences and expressed hope for a, quote, open and honest dialogue with China during this meeting with his counterpart Xi Jinping today. Quote, As leaders of our two nations, we share a responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences, prevent competition from becoming anything sort of a conflict, and define ways to work together on urgent global issues that require our mutual cooperation. And I believe this is critical in the sake of our two countries and the sake of the international community, said President Biden. Now, the U.S. president noted that the world expects the U.S. and China to play a key role in solving global problems ranging from climate change to food security issues. Then some more domestic stuff here. President Biden said on Sunday that he feels good about his further presidency after the midterm elections as the Democratic Party managed to hang on, just barely hang on to control of the Senate. Now, earlier in the day, projections from NBC News showed that Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is, they're projecting her as the winner of re-election in Nevada, which allows the Democrats to keep control of the Senate with at least 50 seats. Now, Biden said that he felt good after the news in Nevada and was looking forward to the next couple of years of his presidency, according to a White House pool report. Then former President Donald Trump has filed a lawsuit against the U.S. House Committee investigating the J6 Capitol riots on Friday evening after it issued a subpoena requiring the ex-president to testify next week, according to Trump's official complaint. The committee requested that Trump appear before them to testify in mid-October. Obviously, we're now in November, so that time has passed. So according to the committee, Trump allegedly played a, quote, central role in organizing and orchestrating the unrest from his supporters at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, after he lost the election to sitting President Joe Biden. The committee admitted that a subpoena to a former president is, quote, significant and a historic action, but noted that Trump would not be the first former U.S. president to testify before Congress. Let me highlight Bill Clinton. I did not have sexual relations with that, that woman. woman. It's Lewinsky. So there you go. Yeah, it's not definitely not the first time. But wasn't he still president at the time, though? And yeah. he was still president. Are they, still saying, president. Are they saying, are they dividing this between former... I think that, I think generally speaking, 
Well, they typically don't. They don't, yeah, do. they don't, but we don't call up presidents. I don't know how many former presidents. It yeah. may be Trump, maybe the first. I don't know. We'll have to check on that. Yeah, we got to fact check that, but I, I think generally speaking, oh, they're never Congress called to stays speak. away yeah. Yeah, from the White House. I, they don't generally do that. Then over to international news, spokeswoman for the Russian Foreign Ministry, Maria Zakharova, has lambasted reports claiming that Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was admitted to a medical facility after he arrived in Bali. That's in lieu of President Putin going. So Mr. Lavrov has gone in his place. Quote, Here with Sergei Viktorovich Lavrov in Indonesia, we are reading the news and we can't believe our eyes. It turns out that he is hospitalized. This, of course, top-class fake news. Zakharova published a clip featuring Lavrov showing him in his hotel room, <gasps> hanging out, hanging out at the lobby, lobby lounge, having a drink. No. So you're saying he's not in the ER? So he's not in the ER. He's not in the hospital. Maria Zakharova, you know, showing evidence that, no, dude's fine. And apparently the foreign minister discarded the reports, adding that Western media writes similar statements about President Putin. Also, yes, like he is dying of this or that. And, you know, he's got fake limbs. Yeah, or he couldn't walk. He's yeah. having trouble walking. He's like he had cancer. He is close and, to death. Every cancer you could yeah. think of, even new ones that they haven't discovered. But they, they need President Putin so they can, you know, do tests as to what kind of new cancer this is. You would think that would bother them from a credibility standpoint. Like, no. I mean, honestly, yeah, you would think, you would think that. that would bother them. They don't care. Guys, we are past It's like you have one caring. job, and that's to get it right. No, we're past that. Lavrov is in a hospital. He's on his deathbed. I'm gonna. I'm actually going to blame Kellyanne Conway for this, because what did she say? We're in a, a alternative facts. Yeah, <laughs> alternative facts. We're that's in an alternative facts world. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the blame squarely on Kellyanne for that, because you know what? The left abided by that, too. They were like, oh, Really? We're beyond facts now? Okay. Fair and they enough. ran with it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, Putin, <laughs> they, they didn't, they had such a problem. Putin was this hyper-masculine guy right. with his shirt off on the horse. Yeah. But when Obama Riding was the on the beach, they just swooned. <laughs> oh, Obama with the shirt off. Oh, my goodness. Sexy. No, world leaders, keep your shirts on. Now, he further, president, or excuse me, uh, Sergey Lavrov further noted that these reports are a political game urging Western media to, quote, try to write more truth. That's a really good suggestion. Yes. He should really lead a leadership class on how to do journalism. A master class like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> she hosted some sort of class. I don't know. Then a suspect has been arrested in connection to the Istanbul bombing, according to Interior Minister Suleyman Soyu on Monday. It was then reported by the AFP that Soylu had accused the Kurdistan Workers' Party, known as the PKK, of being responsible for the bombing, which killed at least six people and injured some 81 others in front of a clothing store. Quote, according to our findings, the PKK terrorist organization is responsible. Soylu added, announcing the arrest of the suspect accused of planting the bomb he did not address the earlier statements made by President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Okte that the person responsible for the bombing was a woman. So they didn't confirm nor deny, but they say they're from the PKK. 
quote, we believe that it is a terrorist act carried out by an attacker whom we consider to be a woman exploding the bomb, Okte said earlier on Sunday. Now, I don't know if they're trying to be PC, but they won't confirm nor deny, but they believe it's a woman. So, <laughs> you know, it's 2022. Yeah. They, they don't want to misgender a suspect. Uh, I see. They. Yeah. They. They arrested they for bombing a clothing store. <laughs> and then a swastika tattooed Azov militant has been making rounds in major Western cities and schools to help drum up public support for funneling cash and weapons to the Zelensky regime. But audiences are increasingly beginning to push back. Azov Regiment photographer Dmitro Kotsatsky was heckled on Sunday night while speaking as an invited guest at the School of Visual Arts Theater in Manhattan during an event hailed as the, quote, largest documentary film festival in the U.S. Quote, hey, I've got a question. This is a a demonstrator kind of heckling him. Quote, why don't you let everyone here know that Mr. Kozatsky is an open neo-Nazi? That's a fair question. These Good college question. kids, right? Fair question. The protester in question, a New York City-based student and organizer with Movement for People's Democracy named Kayla Popuchet, went on to declare that the Azov militant being honored on stage was, quote, has posted pictures with Hitler, has posted pictures with swastikas, and has participated in the murder of children in Donbass. So good on Kayla. Go on, Kayla. And then France will continue military support to Ukraine by supplying it with air defense systems and other equipment, says President Emmanuel Macron on Monday. Quote, we are not a party in a party to the conflict in Ukraine, but we provide it with humanitarian, economic, and military support, and we must strengthen this support by supplying anti-missile and other defense systems. The president noted that the international community must double its efforts to ensure that Ukraine can survive the winter. At the same time, Macron emphasized that it's important to continue dialogue with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Then over in tech news, Elon Musk on Monday got involved in an ugly Twitter spat. Now with who? There's so many ugly Twitter spats he's got going on at once. This one with Tracy Hawkins, former Twitter VP of Work Transformation. Love these job titles, Work Transformation. Over the cost of food being served to the company's employees. Now, Hawkins was the head of Twitter's food program until last week. The squabble begins with Musk and Hawkins uh, broke out after Musk alleged that Twitter spent millions on serving food to its employees at the company headquarters in San Francisco during a time nobody was at the office. So he goes on to say that the average cost of serving lunch to one worker during the past year was approximately $400 a day. Per worker? Per worker. I don't know what they're eating, like ribeye every day. I don't know. I don't know. No, actually, this is San Francisco, so it's like all these vegan things are, they are very expensive. Yeah, that's kind of pricey. $400 a day on food? Per person? So then refuting Musk's claims, Hawkins said that the company only spent 20 to $25 for lunch and breakfast per person 
And then she called him a liar over the issue. She says, this is a lie. I ran the program up until a week ago when I resigned because I didn't want to work for Elon Musk. For breakfast and lunch, we spent $20 to $25 per day per person. This enabled employees to work through lunchtime and meetings. Attendance was anything from 20 to 50% in the offices. Then Musk, not having it, labeled her statement just plainly as false. So I feel like what Miss Hawkins is failing to admit is the cost of having the crew there, the chefs there, and whatever. Yes, the meals might be $20, $25 themselves, but it's not really because the chefs are expensive. They are not cheap people to employ. That's why only rich people can employ private chefs. And they had private chefs at Twitter. So per day, I he's probably right. $400 a day, you have cafeteria staff to clean up, you know, the bus boys and, you know, kitchen cleaners and dishwashers. It probably accounts for about $400 a day. So I'm, I tend to lean, and my family had a, a restaurant. So I, I can tell you that is- General idea, how much does stuff cost? Yeah. Employ. Yeah, you the employee that brings you that food. So it's not, yes, like the cost of this chicken cordon bleu might be- Yeah, specific. Yeah, but then the labor costs involved probably does cost closer to 400. Then this day in history, back in 1908, Albert Einstein presents his quantum theory of light. In 1920, the Russian Bolshevik army captures, captures, that's what's written here, captures captures Sebastopol ending anti-communist attempts to regain the government of Russia. Then in 1994, the first public trains run through the Channel Tunnel, linking England and France under the English Channel. Didn't realize it was only 1994. All right, that's going to do it for your headlines this Monday, November 14th. You're listening to Fault Lines. All right, so let's take a break. We're going to come back. I have an interlocking monologue. It's sometimes I do these where it's not necessarily one specific topic, but the topics are somewhat interrelated with one another. So let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to have a conversation with three different topics, and I guess the topics are interlinking with one another. One has to do with Hassan. The other one has to do with negotiations that were taking place, or at the very least reported, negotiations. And the last one has to do with the G20 summit and whether or not we're seeing the last days of this having as much significance as it has. The first one, when the Kharkov Offensive took place, I pointed out with all of the adulation that was taking place in the West that they're taking the wrong message from this. What I meant by that was this wasn't a situation where the Russians were basically beat. This was a situation where they were basically leaving an area, at which point Ukraine was able to attack. Now, again, this is all to do with information coming out of Brussels or, for that matter, the U.S. Basically give them intake or inventory of what is taking place on the ground and giving them this kind of push to go at it. At the time, I was making the point that this wasn't a situation where the Russian military was being beat in fair, like, basically 
two sides going at one another. This was a case where one side was leaving, despite the fact that what it seemed that the lesson they took from that was, let's push further. And of course, because they took the wrong lesson from that, they had to deal with all sorts of losses associated with their team. And I'm talking about Ukraine in this case. And it seems that many of these offensives have basically ended in the same way with a huge amount of casualties from the standpoint of the Ukrainian side. And yet they still continue with these offensives. Same thing with Harrison. All things been equal. This was a situation where it seems as if Russia was pulling out. I mean, after all, when they announced that they were basically pulling out of Harrison, within a day or so, they were basically done with the pullout, which kind of gives this impression of, okay, well, would they have been able to do this in one day? Or is the situation where this was basically taking place over the course of a period of time? Now, Sir Vikan making this choice in order to pull his troops to the east and in an upper, he did this. I take him at his word. All things been equal, it's to protect the troops themselves and to not have those troops basically being cut off. And east of the Dnieper is a far easier defensive position as opposed to the west. Now, again, this wasn't a situation where these guys were beat. This was a situation where they basically gave up space for time, which, again, don't get the wrong impression from something like this. This is infinitely more defensible position. And I don't get this feeling, at the very least, not that I've seen, that there's any additional spaces for Ukraine to basically push on this line. On top of that, one of the beliefs that I had with Jake Sullivan going to Kiev had to do with this push to try to get these guys to take some sort of action in order for the West to save some level of face, if indeed some level of negotiation was going to take place. Now, in this case, it does seem as if Sullivan was pushing these guys, and they couldn't necessarily get the story straight. In three days, you have basically three different stories. First story, Washington Post, Jake, um, Sullivan went over there not to push them to negotiate, but to make them to soften their position in the optics of negotiation, meaning it wasn't that they were actually pushing them to really negotiate, but to signal to their European allies and other places around the world that they were open to it, even though they weren't pushing them to do it. The very next day, you had Sullivan, who basically, or the reporting was, that he was actually pushing them to negotiate, that it wasn't just him giving the optics of this, but he was indeed trying to push them to negotiate. Then, very next day, you had Millie um, coming out, basically saying that at this point, he indeed wanted them to negotiate, believing that that was the best that they were going to be able to get in that time frame, meaning that this was the best you were going to get, meaning you weren't going to get a better opportunity to come to some kind of negotiation or being open to some sort of negotiation. Now, Russia, to their point, makes the point of saying, we have nothing to do with this. We knew nothing about this. This is purely coming from the standpoint of the U.S. This is not coming from us, which, again, gets across this idea of we're comfortable with where we are. Yes. There's all sorts of, let's say, anger or all sorts of resentment at them pulling out from Hirsan because regardless of what the military situation on the ground is, optically, it looks bad. You basically have a vote. That vote allows that area to come into the Russian Federation and then immediately or shortly after that vote to basically lose that territory. So, yes, the success or the pullout was a success, but it doesn't necessarily mean the optics are great. I guess I'm making the point of saying that despite the fact that the optics aren't great, the negotiation or the push for negotiation is coming from the U.S., which gets across the position or at the very least their appraisal of the position. The problem is with stuff like this is that, yes, you're going to have some people who say, yes, this is a face-saving maneuver. Now we can basically come to some kind of negotiation that they pulled out. But you also have other people who say, why give up the goods if we're making headway? Meaning you get stuck with both people taking the exact same situation and coming with different assessments 
on that exact same situation. The point I'm making here is that the negotiations in this particular situation are coming from the United States, not the other way around. Russia has basically said, we have no idea what they are talking about. This is not coming from us. Simultaneously, that's going on with us is the G20 summit. Now, with the G20, you have all of these countries, the top 20 democracies or the top 20 economies that are basically coming together to have negotiation on all sorts of things. Now, one of the things that was mentioned was this attempt or this objective of trying to isolate Russia at the G20 summit. The interesting thing here, though, is Russia's been making negotiations all around the world, where you're looking at Turkey, whether you're looking at Iran, whether you're looking at Saudi Arabia, and you're talking about BRICS, or for that matter, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I guess I'm saying that despite the fact that they're trying to isolate Russia in this case, it seems that it's the other way around. Yes, you're going to get NATO nations, or for that matter, Japan, who basically end up on the same point of view, but all things been equal, the reason that Sullivan was trying to push for an optics of negotiation is because they looked at it as if the West was being isolated. There were even reports in some of these other summits where people coming out basically saying, doesn't it seem as if that we're the ones that are being isolated, meaning we can't get the rest of the world to jump in on this particular policy, whether that's the uh, price cap policy which seems to be dead on arrival, or whether that's with the isolation policy where you get other countries, whether you talk about South America or for the matter Africa, that aren't going along with us. Meaning that, yes, you're going to try to get a certain level of isolation at the G20, but the reality of it is Russia's been making agreements all around the world. And when you're getting things like BRICS, which is trying to expand magnificently so, you're getting Europe taking a hit currently, meaning taking a hit, and will take that hit for the foreseeable future, basically being colder and poorer. Well, that doesn't, to me, look as if that Russia, in this case, is being isolated. It seems that the half of the world, or the very least three-fourths of the world, is basically lumped onto the side of, we are not taking part of this. We want a secondary economic order. And that secondary economic order is taking place from the standpoint of BRICS. It's taken from the standpoint of the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement. It's taken from the standpoint from the Belt and Road Initiative. And with all of these countries, many of these countries being allies of the U.S., trying to get involved into those organizations. The thing here is, how long would the G20 be able to go along as the G20, as opposed to having this kind of breakdown in economic order where you have, let's say, a Russia-China organization versus a Western alignment? And is it possible that the entire reason or the rationale between the war in and of itself has to do with pipelines and deep, let's say, discombobulate or, or um, disambiguation of these two things? Meaning, there was always issues with the, from the standpoint of the U.S., that Europe had association with Russia, or for that matter, China. And if you're looking at the world in, let's say, the next 10 years, and there's this belief that the horse is going to be out the barn if the world keeps ticking along as the way the world keeps ticking along, maybe you don't necessarily want Europe to be associated with Russia in this particular way, or for that matter, even China in this way. In fact, you may do better off with a world that's broken into two halves with Russia, China working, and along with the Rhine and some of the other countries, with you and the West with Europe being that much more dependent and reliant upon you, whether it's for LNG or whether it's for goods or, for that matter, even if it's just from the standpoint of the companies that are in Europe basically leaving in order to come to the U.S. in order to get a better deal on oil energy or, for that matter, taxes. How long is the G20 going to keep going with the prestige that the G20 has if indeed the world breaks down into these two competing realities. And that's what it looks like it's taking place. I mean, all things been equal, you blow up the pipeline, you basically try to prevent that tether physically. So, or trying to break that tether physically, as opposed to this idea of these countries working in tandem.
We'll see. Right now, I'm very curious on how long this is going to last with the standpoint of um, the European Union, or let's say the G20, having the power and control that it basically has. And I get the feeling that all things been equal, this shift that's taking place, this multipolarity that's taking place will mean a breakdown in economic order where you're going to have countries that are more, let's say, in line with the East and countries that are more aligned with the West. The G20 is taking place now. How long would it last? Well, that's the question. But listen to this. Let's take a break. And we're going to go to the G20. We have somebody on the ground who's there who's going to talk to us about the event. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Visible Chair, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul and Manila Chan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us live on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 845 or for that matter, 945. Okay, so we're going to go to the ground of the G20 Summit. And of course, a lot of the reporting that's been coming out today has been talking about their relationship between Biden and Xi Jinping having a conversation. Um, in some cases, talking about their red lines. Of course, Biden comes out and says, we want to have a great relationship with China, which is the reason why we keep antagonizing over the issue of Taiwan. That's exactly well, we, what we're doing. Biden had this great relationship with Jinping. Yes. That's what he talked about before he got in office, you know. And Biden could negotiate with anyone. That's he right. He was loved around the world. His 40-plus years of Washington experience is what he used to sell mm-hmm. his candidacy. The adults were back in the room. The adults were back in the room. The adults were back in the room. Whether you're talking about COVID policy or whether you're talking about geopolitical order, the adults are back in the room. But if you think about just how it w- night and day, now Trump was his many, in many ways his own worst enemy. Yes. But I simply cannot say, and it's ironic, I was talking to an Uber driver yeah. over the weekend. Some of those are the best conversations. Oh, my goodness. Some of those are the best conversations because so, they come from all over the world. This guy was from UAE somewhere. Yeah. Oh, and he oh was, one of the com- countries that apparently was screwing yeah. us over electorally. So, <laughs> yeah. He brought up, but he said, and then you have this guy. This guy, he goes over to Saudi Arabia and he meets with that father. Uh-huh. He meets, and he, like talking about meeting with Crown Prince's father instead of him. Yeah. So he knew. Oh, he got it. He yeah, got the so insult. Yeah. He knew all of this. He said, and you expect this man to work with you on oil? Yeah. You expect that? He said, it's no respect around the world. I know I sound African instead of... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're fine. But he's yeah. like, it's no respect around the world. He said, this guy, Trump was so bad. Yeah. Trump will say, he said, who likes this guy? Who voted for this guy? And I'm like, what? I'm like, brother. You're like, Whoa. But he made a very valid point. Of course he made a valid point. Is that we, we cared so much about how the world viewed Donald Trump. Yeah. He was so horrible, and people were flying balloons over. Wasn't that in London? In when London, they were yeah. Flying the Trump, the Trump balloon, baby, the Trump baby yeah. balloons, and all of that. And look at us now. Yeah, we're almost. I, I would probably say more so of an embarrassment. Yeah. Than showing that we're the leader 
of the free world. Yeah, this doesn't look indicative of strength. No. Um, you know, when you're no basically— No aspect of our foreign policy. No. Whether you're talking about the Afghanistan pullout, what do you want to talk about the thing? Immigration, look, nothing. Yeah. None of those things are positive aspects. Haiti, and, nothing. <laughs> oh, Haiti is a really good one. But even Saudi Arabia is, is a really Saudi good point. Arabia. I mean, look, it's not that um, Bonesaw is a great guy. <laughs> not that. But he was never a great guy. Saudi Arabia was never this kind of beacon of democracy mm-hmm. in the way that we talk about beacons of democracy. No, it was a very straightforward. We give you um, protection, you give us oil. Mm-hmm. And you put that stuff as a petrodollar, which means that all of these countries around the world need to own dollars if they're going to get energy. Fair enough. The deal was perfectly understood. You don't have to like the guy to acknowledge that. We the, need unsavory people in yes, our circle. It's that part. That's reality. That's reality. And so it's like, you know, you could say. You can beat your chest yeah, talking about well, how much okay. of a threat. I mean, no, how much. We got to pay for our about, values, man. Yeah. And, and paying for our values sometimes deals with. Unsavory characters. Is that? But we have our guests on. We have chief editor of Radio Sputnik, Mindy Gabashelli. Mindy, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys? So far, so good. So apparently, the objective of the U.S. was to isolate Russia. Um, and apparently, this started off with, um, oh, what is his name? What is his name? Lavrov, apparently, being in the hospital. <laughs> this was their, I guess, their main, their way of starting off um, the morning with a bang. Right, because Putin couldn't come because he's dying of 20 different cancers. Right, <laughs> right, right. So Lavrov was sent in his place, and then he gets hospitalized. How, how much accuracy is this? We heard Maria Zakharova deny these claims and then showing a video of Lavrov <laughs> in his hotel room, like, just totally chilling. Yeah, a very surprising statement from Associated Press, and my colleagues forwarded it. It to me was like, what? Literally an hour or two ago, we were in a hotel where he stays, and we spoke with people from his press service, and we were talking about tomorrow and our plans and schedule, and they haven't said a word about him being sick or not well or in the hospital. So we couldn't reach Maria Zaharo at first, and then we saw that she posted his picture. And we're like, okay, so this is not true. All right, but why would on earth AP do that? That's a big question. Uh, I am, I still don't have an answer. That's shocking. <laughs> like that just the guys in the hospital is like, no, he's not. And that's something that you should know it's one way so or the other. Easily provable. Easily too. provable. So why even put that out? Yeah, you know, like super why bizarre. say it? Super bizarre. Well, there's another story that's out in Politico. It says G20 hosts Indonesia lobbies West to soften its Russia criticism and communicate. And basically they were trying to get concessions from these nations to lower the Russia bashing. It's like, let's limit that and let's actually try to have a G20 summit. Had you heard anything about this? While you're on the ground. I've heard about that, but again, people attribute it to political. However, the surprising part is that when I, I told, as I said just a minute ago, we spoke with people from Lavrov's press service, and they told us that uh, he probably will not be staying in Bali until the end of the summit again, which was surprising to me. Most likely, from what I understand, Lavrov will be leaving the summit on the 16th, so he's not going to stay here for the second day of the G20 meeting, which means that 
perhaps Russia decided that it will not be signing a joint communique with other countries, or perhaps it means that Russia agreed to a certain communique with the host, with Indonesia, and other countries will have a choice either to join that communique or not. But again, this is not final. This was a preliminary plan that uh, Lavrov's press service shared with us. So let's see how it goes tomorrow and the day after. Now, Mindy, what about this this meeting with Putin, or excuse me, with Biden and Xi? I mean, is there anything we can expect to be resolved in a sideline meeting? You know, it's funny because this is exactly the question that the journalists were asking senior administration officials that we had a chance to talk to several days before the meeting. And she said, no, please don't expect us to have a joint statement after this meeting or uh, a press conference, a joint press conference after this meeting. This meeting is not going to solve anything. The goal of this meeting is to manage relations between China and the U.S. We need to make it perfectly clear for both leaders where are the red lines. The problem is I think both leaders know where are the red lines. It's just they don't care. We clearly are in the situation when we are seeing Cold War 2.0. And even though both sides will deny it and both sides will be talking about the willingness to work together and uh, the desire to work towards solving global problems, and that's the way the relations between U.S. and China uh, should look like. But the reality is that positions are so different that inevitably, these relations lead to a conflict. Specifically, if we are talking about U.S. positions on Taiwan, for example, because clearly it's a red line for China to send weapons to Taiwan, right? But the U.S. is doing it anyway. Uh, Clearly, it's a red line for China if U.S. officials go and visit the island without even uh, informing Chinese officials. Nevertheless, the U.S. is doing it. Clearly, it's a red line when President Biden says that the U.S. has an obligation to defend Taiwan militarily, which is not true, by the way. The U.S. does not have such an obligation. Nevertheless, Biden said several times, this wasn't one of his guffs, his infamous guffs, that the U.S. will help Taiwan militarily. Nevertheless, it it happened. So, yes, it is pretty hard to see how will China be okay with that and not uh, react in response. Hey, Mindy, I just what are your? We were talking earlier about the 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 lore or folklore, whatever you want to call it, of Joe Biden. Um, he, ta- he touted even that's one of the reasons that Barack Obama chose him 
in 2007, well, 2007, 2008 as his VP because of his experience in Washington. Biden has served on the Senate, what is that, Senate Foreign Affairs um, Committee for decades. And But what we're seeing post-Trump, because there was a lot of hope uh, we'll say hope that was the Biden administration. We were going to have the adults in the room. But when you look at Biden's relationship or the U.S.'s relationships with foreign leaders around the world, from Saudi Arabia to China to all over the world, what do you think of the impact of Biden's foreign policy um, and how people view the world under his leadership? I don't know whether or not this is a return of the adults in which would mean for uh, uh, like which means a return to traditional U.S. policy. In many ways, if you are accustomed to certain things done by the U.S., then yes, it 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 is a return to a more traditional U.S. foreign policy. Trump tried some unconventional things, right? Instead of portraying North Koreans as crazy megalomaniacs who are doing weird things, Trump actually tried to negotiate with Kim. And it was successful in a way, because instead of saying, oh, these people are just crazy, they constantly threaten us with, you know, with a, with a war, he said, listen, but maybe they do all that because they feel threatened. And indeed, the U.S. and South Korea were constantly holding war games that were literally simulated, uh, simulating a nuclear attack on the North. And when Trump stopped those military games, all of a sudden North Koreans stopped their military games as well. But instead of being hailed for this approach, and being commended on something new and non-traditional, Trump was laughed at for this. Even though, again, never, uh, I mean, media, for example, was never, were never able to substantively prove that this approach doesn't work. No, it doesn't. Trump was talking, uh, we were at the summits in Singapore, in Vietnam, and like I personally saw how Trump was asked questions about his approach uh, to this issue. And he said, listen, you guys are criticizing for me for allegedly giving concessions to North Koreans. What are those concessions? The only concession that we had was we stopped those military exercises. And you know what? We saved tons of money because of that. He literally gave an example. I asked my military, so how much money do we spend to bring in those planes here? And the military was, it's not that much. They, they just fly here. And he was like, so where do they fly from? And they're like, oh, from Guam, not a big deal. And he was like, flying from Guam, nuclear uh, bombers. Do you know how much does that cost? It does cost a lot. So A, he was saving money. B, uh, both countries were stepping back from a nuclear conflict. C, 
they were actually negotiating denuclearization. None of this is happening now, right? But nevertheless, Biden and his team are being held as adults in the room because this is a traditional U.S. policy. And it doesn't matter that as a result of it, North Korea is getting more and more nukes. North Korea now is claiming to be capable of hitting the West Coast with its ICBMs. That's the result. Nevertheless, that's a traditional alias policy. Thus, these guys are adults. Yeah, we often ignore what we're doing. We just focus on Kim Jong-un firing missiles. We never necessarily make up the point that he's firing those missiles because he's retaliating against actions that we're basically pretending as if we're about to decapitate the country. Um, I'm curious, with everything that avails the world right now, dealing with energy security, food security, what is the expectation of the G20 going to be around those issues? The expectations are extremely low. And I know that the Indonesian president was complaining that he had to host the most diplomatically complicated summit. You mentioned the piece in Politico that was saying that Indonesia is trying to press other countries to make some concessions to have a joint communique signed. If it's not happening, if it's not happening, that it will be the first time when 20 biggest economies were not able even to agree on a joint statement. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, most likely, this is exactly what's going to happen. So, yeah, it's it's a bad sign for the world. It's a bad sign for especially developing economies because they are the ones who will be hurt the most. But unfortunately, I think that's the most realistic outcome that we can expect from uh, the G20 meeting tomorrow and the day after. Mindy, according to the BBC, they're reporting that, you know, this fantastic, phenomenal handshake between Biden and Xi, (laughs) um, that they're stressing the need to avoid conflict. What is... what? Which conflict do you think the BBC is referring to? I mean, it has to be Taiwan, right? I mean, and what is the best way to avoid such conflict? Because I think the Chinese position and the U.S. position are going to be diametrically opposed. And as I said, this is exactly what the senior administration officials were telling us before the meeting. But it's not just a conflict around Taiwan, even though, yes, absolutely, it's one of the hottest topics. but. There are others. There are issues related to the U.S. de facto embargo on certain exports to China. There are issues around U.S. claims about the intellectual property being stolen from American companies. There are conflicts around economy in general. There are conflicts around Chinese growing influence on other countries. There are obviously conflicts around Russian-Chinese relations because U.S. is demanding China to play a ball with Western countries 
and take their side in the conflict. So there are multiple conflicts. This uh, meaning is in many ways, against very similar to the meetings that we had during the Cold War between the American and Soviet leaders. However, back at the time, you wouldn't have a meeting that A, will be closed for press, and B, we wouldn't even expect a press conference afterwards. So in a way, this situation is even more difficult because right now we are not expecting not only a joint statement, but we are not expecting even, I mean, two separate press conferences, which which indicates that we probably won't have any results whatsoever. These two people know each other really well. Biden is not lying when he's saying that there's very little misunderstanding between them. That's absolutely true. It's just that positions are so diametrically different, as you mentioned, that it's hard to agree on anything. Mindy, let me jump in here real quick, because the other thing that, I mean, to me, having been a reporter for so long, is when they aren't going to have either their own press conference or a joint one, it shows to me, in between the lines, it says that there is no cohesion in whatever they're discussing, number one. And number two, this is done opaquely because neither side wants to lose face or diminish the other side. So this to me means it's going to be a stalemate of a conversation. Now, are you expecting them, you know, given that the the G20, the whole premise of this is a is a trading block, right? It's about money. It's about, you know, economy and shipping goods here and there, import, export. That's the whole point of the G20. But then you can't help but think about, well, okay, is Biden going to talk about BRICS and the growing um, application and membership of other countries expanding BRICS that that if if all these different countries apply and get accepted, this block will overtake the EU and overtake G20 countries in terms of of the billions of dollars in trade. Do you think Biden has the wherewithal to even address that? The short answer is no. <laughs> not only he's not doing that, but he, there were rumors that he was going to meet with the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. Well, now it seems like he's not. And as you know, Saudi Arabia wants to be a part of the BRICS. Uh, so, no, he's not going to be talking about those developing countries. And not only he's not, not going to be talking about them, he's not going to even, he's not even going to meet with other countries who want to join that blog. So, no, I think he is going to stick to meetings with, with more friendly countries and more friendly regimes. It's the easy way out. Yeah. And I mean, I am reading that apparently Biden is going to give a press conference at 830. So oh, okay. not, not, not a joint, not a joint press yeah, conference, yeah, but yeah. 
Um, the New York Times is reporting that he's scheduled to give a conference at 8.30 a.m. Eastern after yeah. he meets. That, to me, sounds like a saving face. This is, this is for me, for Biden to announce that suddenly, to me, that means there. this is a saving face tour, and this is for domestic consumption. The international community is going to shirk this off. But Biden is talking to the press after the meeting because this is intended for U.S. consumption. Oh, yeah. I I, I absolutely believe that. And we know that there are going to be some questions coming from journalists. I just wonder, well, Peter Ducey is there. Maybe he's the the one who will ask a tougher question. But there are people, journalists are beginning Uh to answer, to, you know, ask Biden these kind of— Difficult questions. Yeah. So, but he's going to have to answer. Well, usually he is very specific Mm -hmm. in the people he chooses. Yeah. yeah. When he's well, taking those questions. List. Yeah. Right. It's usually a list where yeah. he's like, um, this guy's on my list. And, you know, where he can limit That's the kind of range of those TV. questions. I think Jamal should remember that when we were covering the summit in Geneva, uh-huh. there was a stark difference between the way Americans were conducting the press conference and the Russians were conducting the press conference. And that was my thinking on it. Yeah. That's exactly my thinking. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, A, it's a good news that he's going to have a presser. Great. Uh, like, this is new to me. And if you are saying that they are going to have it at 8.30 a.m., it's like in 30 minutes. When I got, like, I, I haven't seen the news in the last 30 minutes because I was on the phone with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, but it means that it's supposed to be in 30 minutes. When I got on the phone, the meeting between Biden and Z was still going on from what I knew. Well, that means that probably they're about to wrap it up or they already wrapped it up. Wrapped it up. So this is interesting. But B, speaking of whether or not this is for domestic consumption. So back at the time when we were in Geneva, when Putin held a press conference, there were lots and lots and lots of foreign journalists allowed to that press conference. And he was answering every question. So he literally gave every journalist a chance to ask him a question. It wasn't staged. And Jamal saw that as well. He took all comers. It was astonishing. It didn't matter. The U.S. outlets, foreign outlets, didn't matter. He took it all. But no foreign journalists were allowed to the Biden press conference. So same here. When we were asking, like, we couldn't get even close to the meeting between Biden and Z. And obviously, we are not being invited to the Biden press conference. So I think he will, as Jamal said, he will have a very specific list of journalists who are journalists who are allowed to ask questions. And obviously, I think most of them uh, will be, how do we say it politely? Discussed with his press service in advance. Like, it's a beautiful day out here, isn't it, Mr. President? You yes, like, it is a beautiful do you day like out here. Indonesian food? Right. <laughs> right. The voice you guys were listening to is Chief Editor Radio Sputnik, Mindy Gavashelli. We will come back with you tomorrow to get a I guess a take on what's taking place up to this point. Um, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault lines. 
live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. <sighs> that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan and guest hosts, Malika Boo. I tried to stick you in. I tried to stick you in. I like that. Yeah, I tried to stick you in. Guest co-host. Yes. And reporter for tomorrow. (laughs) Or Wednesday, rather. Yes, for Wednesday. Wednesday. We have people, I love it when we have people on the ground in places. Yeah. It just feels That's so cool that you'll be inside Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. inside the Mar-a-Lago. Not just standing out there with your radio. Oh, your first time. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not on on that invite list. Well, you're on it tomorrow. I am on it tomorrow. New days ahead. That's right. Please pay attention for me. You know what? It took me coming to Sputnik in That's order to really get an cool. invite. Because I did I was doing it for like for four years and yep. I didn't get anything like, out of it. Come on, I'm but a I black conservative. How many of us are there? All right, right. Now I go down to Mar-a-Lago. I'm telling you. Uh, That's I'm awesome. curious if you can keep in mind what the security procedures are okay. to enter. Yeah. Like okay. I'm I'm wondering because I've seen so many reports saying, oh, it's not, you know, with with Trump living at his resort, uh-huh. it's so easy to get in. You just pretend to be an heiress, and then you're playing golf. <laughs> pretend to be an heiress. There's a real story about that, that there's oh, some, really? some mm-hmm. woman yes. pretended to be some oh, kind of heiress. Oh, you mean, what's her name? Um, I don't remember oh, her name. Oh, what is her name? What is her name? And she was pretending to be fake, a German heiress. Fake heiress, yes. yeah. That show, that was phenomenal. I mean, like, it's, it's she like the, BS her way yes. in to an exclusive club. Yes, it wasn't just a club. Then, she did this for years. And then wandered over to Trump on the golf course. Oh, really? There's photos of her like taking like golf lessons if from it's Trump. Who I think it is. She pretended to be a German heiress, mm. and she had this kind of weird accent and everything like fake, else. Yeah, yeah. Like and they were basically trying to. She was trying to get all of this money in order to start the. That's it, Anna de Rothschild. Yeah. Oh, that can't be right. She tried to play a, being a Rothschild? Okay, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. But no, it's no, Anna right Dufree or something? Oh, Anna something? Like a European heiress? Yeah, there, she was pretending to be a European heiress. Oh, God. Um, but I'm curious but to know. But she got on it. I'll, she I, got I'm on. I'm pretty sure it's secure. But remember, the White House. Remember what happened in 2000, what, Somebody strolled in there, right? Well, yeah, the two, oh, the the two couple, couple, the reality that lives team here in couple D.C. under Obama. Yeah. They ended up at the state dinner and they didn't have, they weren't on the list. Well, they weren't reality TV's in. They were like wannabe At socialites right. yeah. in D.C. trying to hang out with mm-hmm. like the, the political elite. Wow. And they BS their way in saying that sure they're on did. the list. And what, I mean, they dressed the part and yeah. whatever. And they BS their they way into in the there. White what House. What is that? Half of getting in it somewhere? Looking the part? What I'll give they a full report and hopefully I'll get some sound bites and maybe, you know, interview some people down there. That should be awesome. I kind of hope you get patted down. Not because in a pervy way. <laughs> patted down? Because you, <laughs> I mean... I want to know that that you know these, I'm pretty sure these that former treasures a, yeah, of America. High level of security. <laughs> it's like when you go to the airport. Former he says, presidents. Sir, I'm gonna put my hands inward when yes. I touch your genitals inappropriately. It's like, dude, you're, you're touching them either way. Just just you're do like, it. Just, just do the bro, search. Just, yeah, because Mar-a-Lago is on a it's on like an like a strip. It's like an island strip mm. sort of thing. Yeah. So you go across the bridge to get there oh. and you need access. That's why you never see pictures mm-hmm. in Mar-a-Lago because it's its yeah, own the way private. It's set up. Right, and then it's off to the cliff, right? Right Right on the water. That should be super interesting. Definitely let us know about that one. That should be really fun. Oh, and by the way, just to back up what Mindy was saying, at the Trump and at the Putin Biden summit, he's right. 
um, Punta, any and all takers. I mean, you can see it. Whoever raised it, their hand. Anybody who raised their hand. And he would ask questions. He was like jostling back and forth with some of the things. Because CNN was always asked conspiratorial questions. Yeah, right. It's like, Mr. Putin, are you sure you don't have a deadly cancer at this moment? Like it was that type but of see, stuff. But see, he was able to field those questions because he wasn't yet dying of 20 cancers. <laughs> that was that part. Now, the interesting now he part, is. though. He knocked him down. He didn't have a problem answering no. the questions. Answered all comers. Mm-hmm. All comers. A fascinating interview. With Biden, very limited. And like you guys were joking, it was like, Mr. Biden, don't say that you're introducing this person. <laughs> it's like, don't read this part. It's like, I'm not supposed to read this part. So and so from ABC. Yeah, it was very call limited. On so-and-so and by the from way, NBC. even with that, he was being attacked. Even with that. Because Biden's Biden and Putin started sounding very similar in those meetings. Like at the point where Biden came out ready to speech, he started off with fire and brimstone and eventually moderated and it's sounding more like, yes, we need to come together, we're gonna to be making agreements. The Rumble Room always has the answer. Golden in Rumble is telling us Anna Sorokin pretended to be a Sorokin. German that's heiress, Anna Delvey. That's it, Anna Delvey. Anna Delvey, that's it, that's it. Look, there's a um, there's a documentary on that, which is fascinating. Of her? Yeah, yeah, I mean, this was big. I mean, she, in the documentary, she was just getting out of jail. And she oh, was she still- she in jail? Yeah, she was, she was getting- She was she, literally impersonating. Yeah, she was trying to get a lot of money from the bank and she was pretending to be a German oh, heiress in order to get that money from the bank and oh, stuff I like that. Oh, I thought she was no, just like- No, it wasn't like, just to get into Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, I thought it was uh-uh. just hustling no, to get into the uh-uh. club. She did this for years. And those big time people believed her. They were giving her money for the stuff, cash for the stuff behind the scenes. No, yeah, it was, it was real. Oh. Yeah. But let's do this, let's get in the headline. In the news, main story for the day. The American, the American, well, they're, they're pronouncing the name a little bit differently. It's, it's, it sounds weird, but it is Delvey. I mean, that that's the yeah, name I remember. And, and the, yeah, late is saying it's Anna de No, 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 it's not the Russia. It's Delvey. But she, yeah, this had went on for like a while. Um, and she, yeah, she was pretending to be an heiress. It was a heiress. long scam. It was a long scam. She was getting out of jail when she was doing the documentary. And when she was getting out there, she had just put on her makeup immediately. After getting out of jail, she was a socialite, all that stuff. It was Fascinating how she was able to um, keep this going for all this time. It was broke. She didn't have any, like, she wasn't German heiress at all. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. God, I so put the on Rothschild, the accent. The Rothschild connection, and before we go to, I know we have to go to headlines, the Rothschild's connection is that she apparently lied. Okay. And said that she was connected to the Rothschild. Ah, there it is. Was. Okay. So yeah. that's where the lathe with the, that's the, the Rothschild part. Okay. Part and then just do the fake accent. Yes, yeah? it was a fake accent. <laughs> yeah. I am an heiress. Yeah. And they believed yeah. her. Yeah, they believed her. I mean, it was like, well, clearly Fair she has to be an heiress. Look at the circle she's in. Listen and, to her accent. And look at her accent Hello. that you can necessarily identify where it was coming from. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, that fascinating stuff. They did a documentary on it and they did a movie on it at this point. But look, let's get into headlines. In the news, the American and Chinese presidents held a meeting on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. The U.S. president, Joe Biden, reportedly stated that Beijing and Washington should overcome their differences and express hope for, quote, open and honest, unquote, dialogue with China during a meeting with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, on Monday. Quote, as leaders of our two nations, we share a responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences, prevent competition from becoming anything to the sort of a conflict and to find ways to work together on urgent global issues and require a mutual cooperation. And I believe this is critical in our sake of our two countries and the sake of the international community, unquote, Biden said. The U.S. president noted that the world expects the United States and China to play a key role in solving global problems ranging from climate change to food security issues. 
Let's keep going. In domestic news, U.S. President Joe Biden said on Sunday that he feels good about his further presidency after the midterm elections as the Democratic Party managed to retain control of the Senate. Earlier in the day, projections from NBC News showed that Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is winning re-election in Nevada, which allows Democrats to keep control of the Senate with at least 50 seats. Biden said he felt good after the news in Nevada and was looking forward to the next couple of years of his presidency, according to the White House pool report. Let's keep going. Former U.S. President Donald Trump filed a lawsuit against the U.S. House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot on Friday evening after it issued a subpoena requiring the ex-president to testify next week, according to Trump's complaint. The committee requested that Trump appear before it to testify in mid-October. According to the committee, Trump allegedly played a, quote, central role, unquote, in organizing and orchestrating unrest for his supporters at the Capitol building on January 6, 2021, after he lost the election to incumbent U.S. President Joe Biden. The committee admitted that a subpoena to the former president is a, quote, significant and historic action, unquote, but noted that Trump would not be the first former U.S. president to testify before Congress. And I think we pointed out Bill Clinton. It depends on what your definition of is, is. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Ms. Linsky. Um, let's keep going. International news spokeswoman for Russian Foreign Ministry, Maria Zakalva, lambasted reports claiming that Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was admitted to the medical facility after he arrived in Bali. Quote, here with Sergei Viktorovich Lavrov in Indonesia, we are reading the news we can't believe our eyes. It turns out that he is hospitalized. This, of course, is top-class fake news, unquote, she said. Sakawa published a clip featuring Lavrov, showing him in a hotel. The minister discarded the reports, adding that Western media writes similar statements about President Putin also. He further noted that these reports are just a political game urging Western media to, quote, try to write more truth, unquote. Think about that. I mean, it's like coming out saying it is totally raining out here, and then it is a beautiful, sunny day. It is very easy to discern whether or not somebody is in the hospital or not. How do you get that wrong? And how do you print that in Associated Press? Do better. Do better. Let's keep going. A suspect has been arrested in connection with an Istanbul bombing. Interior Minister Suleiman, I think this is Soylu, said on Monday. It was then reported by AFP that Soylu had accused the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, of being responsible for the bomb, which killed at least six people and injured 81 others in front of the clothing store in Istal Avenue. Quote, according to our findings, the PKK terrorist organization is responsible, unquote, Soylu added, announcing the arrest of the suspect accused of planning the bomb. He did not address the earlier statement made by President Erdogan and Okte that the person responsible for the bombing was a woman. Quote, we believe that it is a terrorist act carried out by an attacker whom we consider to be a woman exploding the bomb, unquote, Odeke said in an earlier statement on Sunday. Interestingly enough, the United States basically offered, what, an apology or, or um, condolences? In which case, Turkey said we are not accepting them because the PKK is affiliated with the United States. This is super interesting. I mean... Right here. Turkey won't accept U.S. condolences over the blast. This was official. Interior Minister Syrian-based Kurdistan militias with enjoy U.S. support of masterminding the deadly Istanbul bombing. This is something that Turkey complains about all the time of the U.S. support and makes weird bedfellows just in general. But let's keep going. Um, a swastika tattooed Azov militant has been making the rounds in major Western cities and schools to help drum up U.S. support for funneling cash and weapons to the Zelensky regime. But audiences are increasingly 
beginning to push back. As of regiment photographer Dimitro, I think this is Kazaski, was heckled Sunday night while speaking as an invited guest to the School of Visual Arts Theater in Manhattan during an event held as, quote, the largest documentary film festival, unquote, in the United States. Hey, I got a question. One of several demonstrators can be heard asking in the footage of the confrontation, quote, why don't you let, yeah, why don't you let everyone here know that Mr. Kazaski is an open neo-Nazi, unquote. The protester in question, a New York City-based student and organizer with the Movement for People's Democracy named Kayla Popchiket, went on to declare that Azov militant being honored on stage, quote, has posted pictures with Hitler, has posted pictures of swastikas, and has participated in the murder of children in Don Bass, unquote. Shout out to her for knowing reality and being able to call reality out. Hey, that Nazi's a Nazi. Maybe somebody, <laughs> does anybody, it's like, am I the only one here that notices that the Nazi is a Nazi? Yes. Um, thank you for that, pointing that out. France will continue military support for Ukraine by supplying it with air defense systems and other equipment, President Emmanuel Macron said on Monday. Quote, we are not a party to the conflict in Ukraine, but we'll provide it with humanitarian, economic, and military support, and we must strengthen this support by supplying anti-missile and other defensive systems, unquote, Macron stated. Think about that. Think about that. We're not a party to what's happening in Ukraine. We're just providing weapons and humanitarian and economic support. That's all. The thing that's keeping the conflict going. That's all we are doing. But we're not a party to it at all. The president noted that the international community must double its efforts to ensure Ukraine can survive this winter. At the same time, Macron emphasized that it is important to continue dialogue with Russian President Vladimir Putin. I love the way they talk on both sides of their mouth. Um, we're not trying to um, escalate this, but we are trying to be provocative. It puts me in mind of that statement. We're not really um, part of this conflict. But we're just providing economic and military assistance. That's all. Let's keep going. Elon Musk on Monday got involved in an ugly spat with Tracy Hawkins, former Twitter vice president in work transformation, over the cost of food served to the company's employees. Hawkins was the head of Twitter's food program until just last week. The squabble between Musk and Hawkins broke out over Musk's alleged, alleged that Twitter spent millions on serving food to its employees at the company's headquarters in San Francisco at a time when nobody came to the office. The Tesla and SpaceX founder further said that the average cost of serving lunch to workers during the past year was approximately $400 a day. Refuting Musk's claims, Hawkins said that the microblogging platform spent only $20 to $25 for lunch and breakfast per person per day. She even called him a liar over the issue. Quote, this is a lie. I ran the program up until about a week ago and I resigned because I didn't want to work for Elon Musk. For breakfast and lunch, we spent $20 to $25 per day or per person. This enabled employees to work through lunchtime and management, I guess those meetings. According to attendance was anything from 20 to 50% in offices, unquote, Hawkins shot back. However, Musk was having none of it and labeled her statement as false. Labeled her statement as false. I, I don't know. That's, again, I... When you count the sh- you account for the chefs. Well, and I the think crew. your point is I think your point is a fair point, right? I mean, it may be somewhere four hundred dollars sounds so expensive, but look, it may be somewhere in the middle. But you like, add I mean, in a chef. But I mean, if it's like twenty five dollars a meal, that's like any one of us that's going only to the a meal, restaurant though. here to say, right. "Give me the meal." Right? That's only that's the meal. Just the food. That's not the, the cashier calculating the hard costs. Is that cost the person of, who's the chef? Right. Yeah. The staff, the cleaning crew. Now, I want to add lighting the building. I mean, all this stuff. All this plus, stuff. The gas, yeah. like all all that, all that, but. Let me add one more thing that I forgot to add earlier at the 7 o'clock hour. Musk getting in another Twitter fight with uh, Ed Markey. Have you seen really? that? 
getting a Twitter fine <laughs> directly. The fake, he, over the fake account because of the $8, you know, yeah. blue check. Uh-huh. Because I guess he's rolled some of it out. And a reporter, intrepid reporter at the Washington Post, I guess paid the $8 yeah. as a, you know, doing their journalism, um, paid the $8, made a verified account, and then made, impersonated Ed Markey. And then revealed it to Ed Markey. So Ed Markey got mad tweeted at Elon, and then they started fighting, and he said, you know, like, who's to stop this parody stuff and blah, 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 when they're, you know, they get their blue check mark and that's it. Like, who's going to verify this? Elon fired back and simply said, maybe it's because your official account looks like a parody. Yes. Ouch! Burn. 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 Serious. Um, And there's one other story that we got to get to. U.S. intelligence report says key golf ally meddled in U.S. politics. And this is talking about the UAE. This was fascinating. I mean, this went into even buying generals, not just putting money into the campaigns of the various actors, but also paying people in order to influence our politics. I mean, in some cases, giving over information right here. Some of the influence operations described in this report are known as national security professors, but activities have flourished um, because of Washington's unwillingness to reform foreign, foreign influence laws or provide additional resources to the Department of Justice. Other activities more closely resemble espionage, people familiar with the report said. The UAE spent more than $154 million on lobbyists since 2016, according to the Justice Department records. It spent hundreds of millions of dollars on donations to American universities and think tanks and people basically who can produce policy papers who are favorable to them. There is no prohibition in the United States on lobbyists donating money to political campaigns. One U.S. lawmaker who read the intelligence report told The Post that it illustrates how American democracy is being distorted by foreign money, saying it should serve as a wake-up call. Um, Right here. And this is, of course, Joe Biden making the argument that democracy is on the ballot. One of the most brazen exploits involved in the hiring of three former U.S. intelligence and military officials to help the UAE surveil dissidents, politicians, journalists, and U.S. companies. And public legal filings, the U.S. prosecutor said that men helped the UAE break into computers into the United States and other countries. Last year, all three admitted in court of providing sophisticated hacking technologies to the UAE, agreeing to surrender their security clearance and pay about $1.7 million to resolve the criminal charges. Now, keep in mind, this required no jail time. And the point that they're making here is, with all of the money that they were getting from the UAE, this is just a payoff. It doesn't necessarily deter their behavior in the future. But look, those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. All right, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to have a conversation about that story because that story is amazing. And it's a no-duh by the same token. The fact that it's appearing in the media in and of itself is pretty amazing because usually if it's not Russia, China, or Iran, we don't necessarily hear about the influence operations. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202 202- 
521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 845, or for that matter, most likely 945. We're probably going to be getting Elijah at this point. So not on yet. Yeah, he's not okay, on yet. Let me take this opportunity Go for to delineate the multiple security lapses <laughs> at Mar-a-Lago before producer Lathe kills us. Uh-huh. So there is, so I guess you and the Rumble Room are talking about one girl, Anna Sorokin, that they made the Netflix Anna special Delby. about. Yeah. Delvey, her fake name. Yeah. The other one went by Anna de Rothschild. Oh, so there was another so one named Lathe Annie. is talking about a different one, uh-huh. uh, which is the one I'm thinking of in the photos because her photos emerged right after the Mar-a-Lago uh, FBI raid. Yeah. And her photos emerged because she faked being a Rothschild only to hang out with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Wow. But the weird yeah. thing... The other one... But the other one did a long-term scam. Yeah. That's the scam that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. This girl was only a scammer Specific in the sense for of... Trump. She wanted to hang out at Mar-a-Lago. Oh, she wanted to meet Big Paco. However, she... Now, she is a Ukrainian-born woman. Interesting. Which is very interesting. So her her real, her name's Anna, too, but her last name is uh, Yashishin. And I'm <laughs> quoting from The Guardian. Uh-huh. She's the daughter of an Illinois truck driver and maintained that she was a Rothschild heiress <laughs> while holding a position <laughs> as president of the United Hearts of Mercy, founded by Florida-based Russian oligarch Valery Tarasenko in Canada back in 2015. Now, the <laughs> weirdest thing about Valery Tarasenko <laughs> wow. is apparently he was just shot. According, yeah, this is today's news uh-huh. from the New York Post. Now, take that as, you know, yeah. with a grain of salt. But apparently, the guy, her boyfriend, uh-huh. this Russian oligarch, allegedly, just got shot. Just got shot in Quebec. So... <laughs> We are not living in the interesting I enough don't, lives. Don't know. Yeah. Fake heiress. Daddy's a truck driver, but I'm an heiress. I, boyfriend's shot in boyfriend Quebec. Boyfriend is a Russian oligarch. She's Ukrainian. He's Russian. He gets shot at a resort recently in Quebec. Now he's fleeing for his life. Trump Mar a Lago. I don't know. He's going to be there tomorrow. <laughs> wow. He's going to be there. So. Wow. Oh, I'm but, putting it, Malik. But Elijah, you're here. Welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Um, we are great. Better that you are with us. And I want to hit the story um, that came out in the Washington Post. I'm fascinated with this on so many levels. U.S. intelligence reports is basically the UAE uh, meddled in U.S. politics. Meddled is an understatement. Um, and like I was pointing out, this goes beyond just putting money in. I mean, yeah, it's paying candidates and everything else and lobbyists is giving money to political parties. But this part right here, they said some of this stuff looks more like espionage activities. It says one of the most brazen more brazen, brazen exploits involve hiring with three former U.S. intelligence and military officials to help UAE surveil dissidents, politicians, journalists, and U.S. companies. In public legal filings, U.S. prosecutors said the men helped the UAE break into computers in the United States and other countries. Last year, all three admitted in court to providing sophisticated hacking technology to the UAE, agreeing to surrender their security clearances and pay about $1.7 million to resolve the criminal charges. The Justice Department touted settlement as, quote, first of its kind resolution, unquote. But none of these guys got jail time. I mean, this is basically like literal espionage activities, um, whereas some of the other people who basically uh, whistle blew got locked up under actual espionage laws, especially under the Obama administration. Why is the story coming out now? I mean, certainly even in the story, it admits that many of the people in intelligence understood that this was taking place. 
why all of a sudden is this coming out now? And is this any way related to OPEC Plus and the decision that was basically made? Give me your take on this. Well, first of all, uh, the espionage on computers comes from a program that the Israelis have offered called Pegasus. And that is never operated without the Israeli consensus. Secondly, this is nothing new because we've heard just a month ago about how the Saudis invested also 140-something million dollars with exactly the same objectives. So what we conclude here is these oil-rich countries understand how the mechanism of the foreign policy and the lobby in the U.S. work, and they understand that if you invest a few million dollars to uh, influential people, to writers, to journalists, like the CIA did for decades, then at the end of the day, you obtain a very strong influence in the, among the U.S. administration and among the media. This is what the mainstream media is about. So if you sell yourself to a narrative that is offered by the U.S. administration or by a country like Saudi Arabia or the Emirates that are paying a lot of money, at the end of the day, you are selling yourself for whatever cause and reason you're doing it. So, yes, countries like Saudi Arabia, like the Emirates, they are in need of a positive image in the U.S. because... First of all, they're not countries where the people elect their leaders. Secondly, there are uh, autocrat uh, countries where the uh, king and the emir is the one holding these supreme power, uh, spending the money in the way he wants, investing in anything that he wants. And uh, he is the one who decides the foreign policy, the internal policy, the interior policy. Uh, ministry policy. He he is the one who decides everything where human rights are not respected, but they are covered up by the million they are spending in the U.S. through these medias who are not talking about what these countries are doing, which fits exactly in the letter that Rex Tillerson, the former Secretary of State, he received when he arrived to the Foreign Secretary uh, office and he was received by a letter saying where the human right we use only against our enemies like China and Russia and North Korea, Iran, Cuba, and not among our friends. So this is the result of investing so much money and then closing an eye on it. Now, why the reason this coming out now, this is a very good question. It is coming out because these countries have decided to reduce the production of oil by 2 million barrels per day, and this upset the U.S. administration. So the U.S. administration wants to fire back against the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, but in a contained manner. So it's something that they can recover. And the way to recover, because they don't want to spoil the relationship, it is strategic, they need the money of these countries, they need to sell them weapons uh, to uh, stockpile in the desert and never use them, at the exception of Saudi Arabia is using it in Yemen for the last seven years. And they need the money and the investment that Saudi Arabia and the Emirates are doing in U.S. foreign policy when the U.S. is not capable of bringing out 
uh, billions of dollars, then you have other countries who volunteer to pay when there is the right U.S. administration with whom they can be in harmony with. But all things being equal, though, how does this hurt them? I mean, yeah, it brings a, a light to it, a spotlight to it. But is anything really going to be done? I mean, the money is still going to be going to these countries. And like you said, it's not something that breaks the relationship. If anything, you're just putting a spotlight on the fact that they're putting all of this money in order to influence the U.S. country um, government. But how does anything change? <laughs> like, it's like, yes, you bought this as a spotlight, but so what? It's a spotlight. If nothing gets done in order to change it, then the behavior doesn't change. Exactly what you're saying is true. Did you re- do you remember the article that came out in around the beginning, the first week of October uh, about Saudi Arabia, which is exactly the same topic? Yes, but nothing happened afterward. So you bring the article to wave it in the face of the Emiratis and you say, OK, well, this is what I can use against you. Now, what are you going to do for me in the exchange of just killing this story after it is out. And this is what they do. This is what the state do exactly when Donald Trump used to threaten leaders. And the difference between this administration and the previous one is Donald Trump was honest by going out and saying it and telling us that he's bullying countries, he is threatening countries, and Biden is more quiet about it. Yeah, Elijah, you know, staying on the UAE here, it, it should also be noted that it has come to light about a month ago, and this is reporting by the Washington Post, who is very much in favor of the, the Biden administration. It's very clear, outwardly left-leaning. They even reported that hundreds of American retired military generals, including James Mad Dog Mattis, is hired or was at the time before uh, working under President Trump. He Once he retired in 2013, he had a contract with the UAE military and hundreds of other retirees. And, and now the, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Malik, because I know you worked um, for uh, the VA's office, but the U.S. government considers a military retiree anybody 20 years plus experience. You have to get permission from the State Department and the Pentagon to work for a foreign government. So effectively, you would be, you know, considered FARA over there, right? Yeah, because you have to register. Right, you have to register. But these guys have to get approval because these guys— They're former military. They're former military of 20-plus years. They receive a U.S. pension because they're 20-plus years. Anyone working—now, they have a record of those people. Anyone working—anyone that was military under 20 years, they don't have to report— That is the interesting thing is they do not have to report and there's no record of how many American former military are employed by foreign governments. Now, in the UAE, there are hundreds is what is being reported by the Washington Post. How much influence do you think, Elijah, is is the having somebody like high profile like James Mad Dog Mattis working for the UAE, how Effectively, isn't he a lobbyist back here stateside for the UAE? There are also, according to the report, three former U.S. intelligence and military officials. And there are politicians, journalists, American companies. All these have received $150 million in 2016. And just to remind also Saudi Arabia since 2014. So, yes, this is... When you invest in universities, when you pay money to think tanks, 
and main people who are former U.S. Department, former U.S. Uh, uh, Pentagon officials, uh, they all go to academia and join universities, and they work for the uh, the Emirates or Saudi Arabia. They know how to navigate within the corridors of the Pentagon and the U.S. administration, and they offer valuable information about how to deal with the U.S. administration and how to be influential in America and how you kill stories that you don't like or you overcome these. So this is a very uh, strong insight into the U.S. uh, thinking of the decision makers. But at the end of the day, we have to see if these current decision makers are ready to do something about it. Are they involved? Are their parents involved, family members, friends, influential people around them involved or not? Everybody's involved. I remember a story coming out from Qatar uh, toward France where they used to pay very high influential people tens of millions of dollars uh, just for the same purpose. So these countries, Qatar, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, are used to because they understood that this is how the way it functions among the decision maker in America. Elijah, from your standpoint, I mean, if, if indeed this is directly related to the OPEC Plus thing and that particular deal, I mean, is the U.S. trying to find anything else? Meaning, are there any of the clubs or is this just kind of a warning shot more than anything else? It's a message, just uh, as simple as that, saying we can dig into the sh- and we can find something. We can dig into the dirt. And you can throw in your face something that you will not be very happy with. This is what uh, it has been done during Barack Obama, during uh, not Donald Trump, but now uh, under Joe Biden, just saying, well, there are ways where we can uh, freeze your money or some of your assets, or we can come after you for this compensation or other compensation. And all that falls into the same objective. We're going today... And we are in a very critical situation in the world where there is a war that is going on between the two superpowers, the American and the Russians on Ukraine. Now, there are steps that have been taken extremely important that can decide the end of this war. This is why we hear voices coming out uh, from within the U.S. administration asking to stop this war and to start the negotiation. And... That is not something in favor of Biden. For that, Biden doesn't need to dig into the oil reserves. So he needs these countries that are the 23-plus OPEC countries to return and change their decision to stop, to decrease the 2 million barrels per day for two years and perhaps have another thought about it and then say, well, maybe we should reduce it for 1 million or maybe we should lift it and then fill up all the American reserve one again, because Europe is coming to the uh, moment where it has to decide to stop importing uh, Russian oil. And we are already in deep trouble here. We can't do it, but we have committed ourselves to do it. And now today, Ursula von der Leyen is saying we were going to put a cap on the uh, oil price. So all these fall into the same topic that you started with. The report against the United Arab Emirates is only uh, serving to put pressure on the oil producer country to regain 
again the reason that the Americans is looking for and to change the decision of decreasing the, the uh, production of oil. Yeah, but the Ursula von der Leyen stuff, the price cap idea is dead on arrival. I mean, even the publication or the reporting of it, even from the Western well, standpoint. It was the Janet Yellen initiative. Yeah. She was the one that rallied the G7 to, to go along with it. I this. know, but Brazil is not for it. India is not for it. China is not for it, which is basically half of the world is not for it. How are they still pushing this as a legitimate plan? I mean, Europe is still pushing this, correct? Because so far we didn't see any Russian plane shot down with the refrigerator on top of the plane or a washing machine, <laughs> as she said, taking the semiconduct from this uh, uh, utility. And she is not elected. She needs to bring forward a narrative that just nobody wants. She's not in contact with the street. She's not in contact with what's happening in Rome, what's happening in Paris, what's happening in Berlin, what's happening around uh, the European Union nations, where everybody's saying, I used to pay 90 euros per month for the gas. I received the bill of 350. This is not possible. The, the increase of prices is not something that we can afford for very long. And this is not going to be sustained in Europe. This is why the beginning of the, um, uh, the manifestation and the anger from the Europe, um, starting in the European street is increasing. This is why Europeans are saying, apart from Germany, that is really weird, everything that's coming out from Germany in the last few months. But uh, uh, although uh, they're not really in contact with the population, but uh, the, uh, and uh, here I'm talking about the Chancellor Schultz, but um, uh, the people are very much alive. And people are saying this is not something that we can keep forever. And the, the Americans are saying we are afraid that our European partners are not going to sustain the sanction against Russia. Well, of course, if you sell out the gas four times more, than uh, the usual price, we're not going to be very happy to follow you. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Hey, Elijah, I was, apparently there were thousands of protesters, I believe that was last Thursday, across um, cities in France were protesting. Um, can you give just your um, kind of bird's eye view of that? And also, is this an extension of the protests that were um, melancholic? Melancone, probably getting his name right, but wrong, but um, that he helped coordinate or those that were backing him, is it, is it an extension of that or is this something different than what we're seeing with the protests now? No, the protests are always the same and now they are increasing because the inflation is increasing. All the figures that we receive about 10% inflation or 10.5, they are unreal because they include everything, but they don't they don't speak about the inflation of food, for example, that is uh, 200% or the 100 uh, to what to from 100 to 200%. We see it in the market every week that is changing. They're not talking about the price of gas. They're not talking about the cost of life and the uh, power of the euro that is diminishing. So the people, the official are telling us, if you have a thousand euro in your bank today, it is worth 600 or 500. Yes, so it is really painful. So now uh, what is happening in Europe is people are getting more and more aware that where this comes from 
and why we are taking these decisions that are incompatible with our interests. And these voices are reaching the decision makers. The problem is, are these decision makers ready to shift their policy? Well, what they are waiting for, they're waiting for the Americans. But we have seen two things recently that are helping the Americans to think again if they want to really start the peace negotiation with Russia. And I'm here talking always about the Americans because the dialogue is between the Americans and the Russians. It's not between the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are just... Uh, uh, this is the, the theater of the operation. It is not something that concerned them, although I feel very um, uh, sad about the population because they're paying the price of the U.S. hegemony and U.S. policy. So what's happening recently is we have heard about the uh, partial retreat uh, from uh, a small section of Kherson from the Russian to the point where uh, the the Ukrainian will never be able to cross the, the Dnipro River. We heard again uh, also about the hypersonic missiles that the Iranians announced they have it, and that's certainly from Russia. These two elements are key that the Europeans rely on to convince the Americans, if you continue, your enemy are going to receive much more sophisticated weapons. Secondly, Russia is uh, has consolidated is defense line. You're not going to be to break it. So what's the point in continuing the war? So these will help the inflation. These will help to bring down the price of gas. And this is why we hear the U.S. Uh, the commander chief of staff, uh, McKenzie, saying he is for the diplomatic solution when Sullivan and uh, uh, Blinken are against it now. So we hear the general from the military point of view saying, well, there is no point. What has been done has been done, and we're not going to be able to advance. We're going to lose more in Lugansk because this is the Russian have decided to free all of Donbass and to take it uh, under their control. And in Kherson, nothing is going to happen because there is a natural barrier now that is going to the Dnipro River and you're not going to advance. So go to the table and negotiate because we don't have any more weapons to give to Ukraine and the European will abandon us. Yeah, and to be clear, that was Milley, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Mark Milley. Um, let me ask you this. I want to get into Turkey for a moment. So it says a suspect has been arrested in a connection with the Istanbul bombing. Interior Minister, this is Suleyman Soylu, said on Monday, it was reported by the AFP that Soylu has accused the Kurdistan Workers' Party of being responsible for the bomb, which kills at least six people and injured 81 others in front of a clothing store in Iskatal Avenue. The reason I'm bringing this up, I thought this was super interesting. Right here, Turkey won't accept U.S. condolences over the blast. And it says, Turkey has identified YPG militias in Syria as the masterminds behind the Delhi bombing in Istanbul and will not accept the condolences from the United States, which has supported them in the past. Quote, we have received message, but we will not accept and are rejecting condolences from the U.S. Embassy, Interior Minister Suleiman told journalists, as quoted by Tass. I don't think I've ever heard anybody reject a condolence. Um, before. <laughs> Give me your, <laughs> Why are they rejecting this? Explain I don't this. want your condolences. Yeah, I don't want your condolences. Keep your condolences. That's just an amazing thing to say, especially among allies. I mean, because... They're frenemies, let's be honest. They are frenemies, but we consider them allies. I mean, they're part of NATO, for God's sake. Um, but give me your take on that. Why? I know that the U.S. has a relationship with, let's say, the Kurdish um, Workers' Party, in which case Turkey has always been against and considered these guys basically terrorists. But get into the details of this force. Why is Turkey or Turkey 
not accepting our condolences on the bombing. Well, it's, uh, this morning I was talking to a colleague in Istanbul, and uh, she's very well informed about the interior policy and all these decision makers. And she was telling me that the police managed to uh, um, control 1,200 cameras around the Taksim area in Istanbul, and they managed to uh, follow the lead where this woman was uh, started her journey from which house from which flat she was in, and they managed to arrest her. And she is Syrian. She is from Kobane. And she started her journey from Kobane. And Kobane has another name, is Ain al-Arab, in uh, Syria, in the northeast of Syria, under the control of the U.S. occupation forces. Now, she said that she was trained in Afrin, and Afrin is also another city in the northeast of Syria, under the control of the U.S. Uh, uh, forces. And the uh, these forces are the ones trained by the U.S. So uh, by saying the PK, she was trained by the PKK in Afrin because the YPG Kurds in uh, Syria are the PKK branch in Syria. And because of that, the interior minister is the one who said, we don't accept your condolences. So this is basically not really the official version of the foreign ministry and the president, who at the G20, now they can meet with uh, the the, uh, two official, I mean, I'm talking about the Kurdish and the Americans can meet and perhaps soften this pressure. But basically what the Kurds are saying, these are the people you are protecting. They are protecting you in northeast Syria, that you are taking the gas and oil and the uh, all the uh, food basket of Syria from you are training, you are providing weapons to these people, and they're using it against us. Now, this is very serious because when you use uh, American weapons or American explosives, in a, another country that is a NATO country, the second largest forces in NATO is Turkey. Now, you really badly need Turkey to accept Sweden and Finland within the NATO membership. And you are in negotiation with Turkey about the F-35 and F-16. And then you see Turkey playing a positive role in trying to ease the export of grain from Ukraine and the um, organized talk between the Ukrainian and the uh, Russian. And then you accept that your partners in Syria send a a bomb and plant a bomb in the the busiest area in Istanbul, saying that there is no security in the country. That's very serious. But why would they do this? I mean, why would the PKK carry out an attack like this? Well, because first they think they can get away with it and th- and uh, blame ISIS uh, or ISIL or Daesh, the Islamic State. And secondly, because this is an ongoing war between the PKK and Turkey. However, it is very stupid of the YPG to do it in this way because Turkey was stopped by Russia and Iran not to attack Afrin and not to take it under its control and not to invade the northeast Syria. And when you do this and you say, well, the Turks, are, well, the Kurds are going to be 
good boys and they're not going to do anything against you. And then you send a bomb that really gives no strategic purpose, but to say we continue our old struggle, ancient struggle with the with Turkey. This is very stupid. And I'm not surprised at these people accepting still the U.S. Op- uh, occupation forces in their area and not having serious dialogue with Damascus to return under the control of the central government. Elijah, you brought up the G20, so I'd like to go on that for a little bit, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Um, so the G20, obviously, the she and Biden have just concluded a meeting. I think right now Biden should be hosting his own press conference. Uh, Xi Jinping is not expected to have a press conference. However, Voice of America is reporting that, well, Jake Sullivan is there with President Biden, and he declined to respond whether or not Biden was planning on walking out uh, when the Russians speak, specifically if Vladimir Putin will join virtually, because uh, President Widodo of, uh, of Indonesia has also invited Ukraine virtually uh, to join the meeting, even though they are not a, a member state to G20. How do you read all of that that's happening? I, I see that, first of all, the main objective is for Biden to sort out his differences with China because they've raised so much the platform and the threat against China in the last couple of months. Everybody accused China and everybody said we have to do this against China, prepare against China. So and we see Biden going uh, like uh, a very nice uh, want to hold a very nice talk with uh, the Chinese president, like nothing has happened. Uh, we understand that all this was a preparation for the forthcoming meeting and to keep China away from fighting against the U.S. hegemony. The U.S. wants to impose its hegemony and it's want to make sure that it's not going to be challenged by China and Russia, but it's, it's, uh, it's already too late. Secondly, uh, uh, President Putin didn't go, and that is normal because, uh, first of all, he doesn't want to have all the folkloric reaction from several heads of states who wants to boycott Russia and just uh, occupy the headline. Uh, third, inviting Ukraine, it doesn't make sense because Joe Biden was there, so he is Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> So there's no need to invite Ukraine. What Ukraine is going to say that Joe Biden didn't say. And the the problem of the people, some people today, when they hear the Americans saying, one official saying we need to start a negotiation and others saying we don't need to start a negotiation now. And then they speak about Ukraine can decide. Can decide what? You talking on, on behalf of Ukraine. Speaking about that for the moment, the Wall Street Journal, they're reporting us as, quote, the U.S. and some of its allies are concerned that their stockpiles of weaponry, including ammunition, are being depleted at an unsustainable rate. The U.S. military support for Ukraine this year is nearing 19 billion, has far outstripped its European assistance. Quote, we're seeing real practical problems in making military progress. We're seeing shortages of ammunitions, said another official. And I guess, is this the reason that Milley is basically saying, okay, maybe we need to come to the table? Because to your point, you're right. I mean, Sullivan, the reporting on it is weird. Initially, the reporting said, "Okay, we want you to soft your position to give the appearance um, that you're willing to negotiate, even though we don't expect you to negotiate. 
That was one day. The very next day it comes out, says, no, he is pushing for there to be some kind of softening in regards to some kind of negotiation. And then you got Milley um, coming out basically saying, yeah, we should negotiate. The Wall Street Journal is pointing out that the issue is weapons stockpiles, that basically we've given up so much weaponry that we're concerned that we ourselves are going to run short on those stockpiles. Do you think that's where this push for negotiation is coming from, from the U.S. standpoint? Well, the, the opinion of the military is highly important in any decision that can be taken uh, by the uh, leaders of the country. It doesn't mean that they hold the, uh, uh, the last word, but their word is based on a strategic view from the military point of view. And as I have noted previously, from the military point of view, there is no way where Russian soldiers are today in Ukraine that can be defeated. The withdrawal from part of Kherson, because people say Kherson has been liberated. Well, a third of Kherson has been liberated. And the two-thirds that is in connection with Crimea and where there is a fresh water and everything that is not, it's still under the Russian. And what people uh, miss out is the area where Kherson was, uh, the, the, the Russian way in Kherson on the west side of the uh, of the Dnipro was, is a lower than the east side. So the 30,000 soldiers left from the west to the east, and the Ukrainian now, uh, because this, the Russian uh, came out of that trap, the Ukrainian fell into that trap, and now they are under the mercy of the flooding dam or not. So they're not in a strong position. However, they, the Russian withdrew from part of, of uh, Kherson. So from the American point of view, from the American military point of view, they are in a very strong defensive position. And the attackers need to be four times more numerous than the defenders. This time, we have a reverse equation where the Russians are on the defense on the east side of the Dnipro, and the Ukrainians are on the west side, and they need four times the Russian forces, and they need to cross the river, which is not something easy. And on the other front, as President Zelensky said, in Lugansk, there are, are fierce battles where the Russians are advancing. So Donbass is going to be completely under the Russian control, and then uh, Kherson from the east side of the river is under the Russians. So what's the point? The Russians took what they want to take. They are in control of the area they wanted, and we can't defeat them in their position at the current state. Do you want to increase the uh, quality of the weapons? That will bring Russia a heavier hand. Now, uh, if uh, we don't have any more ammunition to give them, the Americans ask the North, uh, the uh, South Korean to give them uh, ammunition, and the Russians said, if you do that, I'm going to uh, allow the North Korea to do whatever they want with you. So each part is threatening those who can supply the ammunition. Europe doesn't have any more ammunition, and the Americans are screaming, we can't sustain this battle for very long. So from the military point of view, it is useless to continue. Plus, our enemy, from the American point of view, and here I mean Iran, from uh, that is the enemy of uh, the U.S., is getting much more sophisticated weapon that we in America don't have and we didn't start with using the hypersonic uh, missiles that are 5 to 20 times the max speed. So all that is co 
completely damaging to the U.S. and they no longer gain anything. From the, the politics, from the political approach, that is the job of Blinken, he's saying, well, we can play on it. And the minute you're saying, well, we don't play, we can't go anywhere anymore. That's it. This is the line that we have fought for and we can't advance uh, further. Elijah, always appreciate you joining us. Well, one last question before we close. We have about a minute left. Um, in Syria, there was this kind of retraining of the, US mil- of the, of the Syrian military. Um, with the Russian forces. Are we expecting that once the Russian troops get in and the reservists are basically instantiated into their positions, that there are going to be these kind of large-scale operations either in the winter or immediately after? That's a very good question. And I'm going to share something that has not been shared on the media. Damascus had decided to gather more forces to hassle the U.S. forces in the northeast Syria that is occupied land. So the, uh, uh, the Syrians are very serious in saying we want to recover our land. Doesn't mean they're going to start the attack tomorrow, but they're going to reinforce their positions in the, uh, at the airport in very uh, military position. They have already in northeast Syria, but they're not allowed to uh, do military maneuver or to go out and control the land. Now the Syrian government has decided to be a bit more aggressive in his presence in the air. And that was my thought. I asked the question at the end. But Elijah McGay, veteran war correspondent, 35 years of experience. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Thomas and Chan. We're joined with co-host Malik Abdul. Um, and I want to give Elijah his call sign before we call, um, leave on this one. Elijah Bengay is a veteran war correspondent with 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at EJMALRAI and find his reporting on his website, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. I'm always fascinated with Elijah. I mean, just his experience in general was just... And hot take. Yeah. That was a hot take. Yeah. Say, I mean, <laughs> don't need to invite Ukraine. Biden's already there. Yeah. <laughs> right. I love that, right? Like, damn, burn. Yeah. And true. That <laughs> just so happened to be true. Um, but look, let's get into headlines. Let's get to our main story. The American and Chinese presidents held a meeting on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. U.S. President Joe Biden reportedly stated that Beijing and Washington should overcome their differences and expressed hope for an open and honest dialogue with China during a meeting with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, on Monday. Quoting Mr. Biden, as leaders of our two nations, we share a responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences, prevent competition from becoming anything of a sort of conflict, and define ways to work together on urgent global issues that require our mutual cooperation 
And I believe this is critical in the sake of our two countries and the sake of the international community. Biden also noted that the world expects the U.S. and China to play a key role in resolving global problems ranging from climate change to food security issues. Moving on to domestic news. More about U.S. President Joe Biden, who said on Sunday that he feels good, maybe in a, I don't know, James Brown way, about his further presidency after the midterm elections as the Democratic Party managed to retain control of the Senate earlier in the day. Projections from NBC News showed that Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is winning re-election in Nevada, which allows the Democrats to keep control of the Senate with at least 50%. Keep in mind, the two independents also caucus with the Democrats. So we no longer will need Kamala Harris as the um, tie vote, which is what Democrats were using when they only had 50. Biden also said that he felt good after the news in Nevada and was looking forward to the next couple of years of his presidency, according to a White House who report. Yes, I mean, it, it, maybe we should actually say Biden has a reason to feel a little wind at his back. Uh, the Republicans, Democrats didn't lose as many as expected and they get to keep the Senate. But what happens in 2024? Does Joe Biden go for it? From what I'm hearing, Joe Biden is planning to run. But I guess the question is, if he does, who's going to stop him? More domestic news about another president or former president. U.S. President Donald Trump filed a lawsuit against the U.S. House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot on Friday evening after it issued a subpoena requiring the ex-president to testify next week, according to Trump's complaint. The committee requested that Trump appear before it to testify in mid-October. According to the committee, Trump allegedly played a central role in organizing and orchestrating the unrest of his supporters at the Capitol building on January 6, 2021, after he lost the election to incumbent U.S. President Joe Biden. The committee added that a subpoena to a former president is a significant and historic action, but noted that Trump would not be the first former U.S. president to testify before Congress. Yes, I believe there was one, there may have been one or two more. I expect that Republicans will pretty much shoot all of this down since a pretty good chance of us actually retaking the Senate. It's pretty shameful that we don't know the results yet. But yes, the irony is that the Capitol 6 committee, the, the January 6 committee tends to think that Trump played a very material role, a central role, but let me tell you how that works for a law enforcement perspective. If Trump played a central role, meaning that he was behind helping to coordinate what happened in any way, then it wouldn't be a congressional committee. It would be the Department of Justice actually going after Trump. And at this point, they haven't done anything, which should make you question Democrats' motives here. But moving on to international news, Spokeswoman for the Russian Foreign Ministry, Maria Zakharova, Zakharova lambasted reports claiming that FM 
Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was admitted to a medical facility after he arrived in Bali. Quoting here with Sergei Viktorovich Lavrov in Indonesia, we are reading the news and we can't believe our eyes. It turns out that he is hospitalized. This, of course, is top class fake news. Zakharova published a clip featuring Lavrov showing him in a hotel. The minister discarded the reports, adding that Western media writes similar statements about President Putin. Also, he further noted that these reports are just a political game urging Western media to try to write more truth. Wow. Ouch. A suspect has been arrested in connection to the Istanbul bombing interior minister's Suleiman Solu said on Monday. It was then reported that by AFP that Solu had accused the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, of being responsible for the bomb which killed at least six people and injured 81 others in front of a clothing store in Istikol Avenue. Quoting, according to our findings, the PKK terrorist organization is responsible Soilu added, adding that announcing the arrest of a suspect accused of planning the bomb, he did not address the earlier statement made by President Erdogan and Okte that the person responsible for the bombing was a woman. We believe that it is a terrorist attack and carried out by an attacker whom we consider to be a woman exploding the bomb, Okte said earlier on Sunday. More international news. A swastika tattooed Azov militant has been making the rounds in major Western cities and schools to help drum up public support for funneling cash and weapons to the Zelensky regime, but audiences are increasingly beginning to push back. Azov regiment photographer Dmitry Kozatsky was heckled Sunday night while speaking as an invited guest at the School of Visual Arts Theater in Manhattan during an event held as the, quote, largest documentary film festival in the United States. Hey, I've got a question. One of several demonstrators can be heard asking in footage of the confrontation. Why don't you let everyone in here know that Mr. Kozatsky is an open Nazi? The protester in question, a New York City-based student and organizer with the Movement for People's Democracy named Kayla Papouche, went on to declare that the Azov militant being honored on stage had posted pictures with his Hitler, has posted pictures of swastikas, and has participated in the murder of children in Donbass. More international news, France will continue military support to Ukraine by supplying it with air defense systems and other equipment, President Emmanuel Macron said on Monday. We are not a party to the conflict in Ukraine, but we will provide it with humanitarian, economic and military support, and we must strengthen this support by supplying anti-missile and other defense systems, Macron stated, adding, that the international community must double its efforts to ensure that Ukraine can survive this winter. Winter. At the same time, Macron emphasized that it is important to continue dialogue with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And in tech news, 
Elon Musk on Monday got involved with a little ugly spat with Tracy Hawkins, former Twitter vice president of work transformation, over the cost of food served to the company's employees. Hawkins was the head of Twitter's food program until just last week, and the squabble between Musk and Hawkins broke out after Musk alleged that Twitter spent millions on serving foods to its employees at the company's headquarters in San Francisco at a time when nobody came to the office. The Tesla and SpaceX founder further said that the average cost of serving lunch to a worker during the past year was approximately $400 a day. But Ms. Hawkins, she was not having it. Refuting Musk's claims, Hawkins said that the microblogging platform only spent $20 to $25 for lunch and breakfast per person per day. She even called him a liar, lying Elon, over the issue. This is a lie. I ran the, this program up until a week ago when I resigned because I didn't want to work for Elon Musk. For breakfast and lunch, we spent $20 to $25 a day per person. This enabled employees to work through lunchtime in meetings. Attendance was anything from 20 to 50% in the offices. Hawkins shot back. However, Musk was not having it either as he labeled her statement as false. Now, I think it's probably worth noting that Musk is alleging that nobody came into the office at the time and Tracy Hawkins was saying that 20 to 50% of the staff came into office. I'm thinking that the sweet spot may be somewhere between maybe 30%. But if 30% of your staff, only 30% of your staff is coming into the office, that probably means that it was pretty empty. But on this day in history, I won't get into that Twitter fight, but on this day in history, in 1908, Albert Einstein presents his quantum theory of light. In 1920, the Russian Bolshevik armor army captures Sebastopol, ending anti-communist attempts to regain the government of Russia. And in 1994, first public trans trains run through the Channel Tunnel linking England and France under the English Channel. These are your headlines for today, Monday, November 4th, 14th. We still don't have all the results from the election, but you are listening <laughs> to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. By the way, Biden's giving his speech now. Yeah, I okay. just stopped out there for yeah. a little bit, too. Talking to the press. Um, is specific. It's for domestic. All the questions and answers. Domestic consumption. Domestic consumption. We're not going to war in Taiwan and blah blah blah, but no real specific. I want someone to ask him about nuclear Armageddon. Ask him. Ask him these questions. Oh, you know they're not going to ask him about that. The person that will ask something similar to that Mm -hmm. would be Peter. And I think it's another one. Kristen has been kind of welfare. She's been she's been asking some questions, yeah, from NBC or something. Yeah, she has been kind of asking some, but it's you know you can imagine it's going to be softballs. Yeah, oh yeah. 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 I mean, they asked him. They said, did, "Did Xi Jinping seem more confrontational?" See what? That's, so what, what? Why? Yeah. Because well, because you waste because your what? question on that. Well, and I, if he did, then what? Yeah. It's did like, he, you're going to fight him? Did he give you him? side eye? Right. <laughs> right. I'm just like, you're going to fight him or something? Yeah, it's like, like what, what are you going to do about it? The <laughs> substance of that question is what? I mean, do you, you want the American people to know 
What? What from that question? I, I mean, the way that is tough. I mean, their framing of this Body is, language? of course, that, challenge him to a push-up game. Well, it's it's weird on so many levels. I mean, their their take is well, China is being more provocative. Okay, but what does that mean? They're not antagonistic, right? Define that. I mean. Their argument is, well, I get that the U.S. has 800 military bases around the world and we were talking about going to war in Taiwan, but it's China that's being provocative here. I mean, it's like, come on, man. It's like, are we being serious? Yeah, but China could just respond and say they're not being escalatory. (laughs) All right. (laughs) We're we're being provocative, not escalatory. Excuse me, Mr. President. We're just, to quote your military high top brass, right? We're just being provocative. We're not being escalatory. escalatory. Yeah. I mean, Sir. look, to your point, those questions are oriented towards an American audience. And like you said, those questions are oriented in a way that it's like framing is built into the question mm-hmm. in a weird way. It's like, so they're being provocative, Mr. President. Did you see that Xi Jinping was being aggressive towards you? And it's like, I, it gets aggravating sometimes. I, I think Mindy made a really good point about the North Korea thing. It's like Donald Trump showed proof of concept. We used to call it in software, proof of concept. Basically, build a sandbox version of something to show that you could build a version of it. Well, Trump was able to show that, hey, diplomacy does work. And in fact, yeah, it works. I mean, you know, like this argument of how dare Trump stop the military exercises when we were pretending to invade North Korea. Yeah, I was thinking when Mindy said that, I was like, you like, do you guys realize that we're basically if we were boxers and we were training mm-hmm. us and the South Korean military basically have punching bags with Kim Jong-un's face on it yeah. and we're just punching at it. Yeah. Every few, every year, twice, two or three times a year, just hitting him in the face and just looking at him as we're doing it. You don't like this? You don't like this? We're just practicing. We're just, it means nothing. I mean, imagine if they did that, if, if Russia was doing it to us, like they were doing a decapitation strike, I don't know, in Florida or somewhere. I don't know. I mean, like, we would right, not like they tolerate have a, they that. They built a fake White House yeah. in Siberia, and they're like, let's bomb it. Do you remember when China launched that missile to take down the satellite, and their response was, they're doing this to be provocative towards the United States? From Do you remember on, that? I'm just going to say, but it's not escalatory. <laughs> I'm going to use that. That's so good. That's such good, bad reverse logic. You're getting, with, like, um, Jen Saki got paid for our values. That's the way I always, I always repeat that, because I love that line. Got paid for our values. Got paid for our it's values. It's pretty good. It's a great line. It, it the escalatory line sticks but too. Not provo- it's provocative, not escalatory. Not escalatory. There's a difference. Somehow. Just saying. Somehow there's a difference. Uh, but look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. We're coming back with the one and only Ted Rawl. Democrats keep the Senate. That's only provocative. (laughs) Back in a moment. (laughs) Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share the audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202 521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Don't be shy. We're trying to get to your calls at 945. But I want to bring in our guests. We're joined with the one and only Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Ted, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I am doing great. Better that you are joining us. 
and Democrats keep the Senate. What is your take on that? I mean, they're, they're, at this point, they believe that the congressperson or the, the senator from Nevada is going to win that race. What is your take on that? I mean, Democrats basically keep this by the skin of their teeth. I mean, I've been asking conservatives, are they surprised at the results? And if so, why? And so I'm going to ask you from the standpoint of the left, are you surprised that Republicans didn't get the red wave? I think Manila said a, a miss, a red miss um, or sprinkle. Are you surprised that they didn't get the results that they were expecting? Or for the matter that I was even expecting? No, definitely. Uh, I'm surprised that uh, that basically abortion turned out to be a far more potent issue. Um, I think one thing that nobody talks about is how the crime issue uh, it did not seem to. Sorry, the border issue did not really seem to resonate uh, with swing or uh, or Democratic voters at all. It's, it's almost like that was completely in the Fox universe, and uh, it just didn't it didn't fly. Inflation and and crime did, but uh, you know, abortion sort of staunched the bleeding. But look, Democrats lost this election, right? So they lost. You know, almost certainly they have lost the House of Representatives. Although I know there's some some strange articles in the New York Times that say that there's, so, you know, if, if, if you stand on your head and rub your belly and, and, and close one eye, you can sort of see how Democrats might keep the House. But, you know, it, it's not really true, right? So it's a defeat. And so it's like, you know, if you lose by less than you thought you were going to lose, uh, you know, the danger is that you're not going to learn anything from this. I don't think Democrats... Democrats are currently, you know, saying that, that, you know, they did great. Republicans lost, uh, that, you know, Biden said he's not going, nothing will fundamentally change. That's his favorite, uh, that's his favorite, uh, thing to say ever, always. I don't know why he keeps saying it. Um, so, cause that's, that's what voters really like to hear all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think the Democrats are idiots. They should say, look, uh, you know, this could have been a lot worse and, uh, and we're grateful for that. But, you know, this is not a time for triumphalism. I mean, you know, we lost the House of Representatives. Uh, we did not gain, we probably at most will gain one seat in the Senate, maybe. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't exactly be dancing in the streets. Yeah, it, it's just like saying, well, if this was a boxing match, we only got KO'd, not TKO'd. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it's it, that's right. It's like, well, you know, a loss, is a loss, is a loss. I mean, you know, the, the, the Democrats had complete control of the legislative and executive branches, um, and, and now they don't. I mean, so that's, it's, it's not, uh, I, but, but the thing is, they're also not going to figure out all the things, they're never going to look at all the things that they did wrong in this cycle that led to this loss because they don't think that they lost. And, and here's, the, here's the thing, Ted, is like, like you said, the Democrats had full control of both chambers of Congress, right? And if, a, if if abortion was really, truly that important to them, they would have made a move to enshrine that into law, into a federal law across the country. And, and we don't even have to go backwards in time to say you've had 40 plus years to do this. But this most recent session of Congress, they the Democrats controlled it. If If abortion really was that important to them, they would have made it a legislative matter, but they didn't. And Republicans really effed up by not pointing that out. And I, I would have run with it. I would have run with it if I was a Republican consultant. I agree with you. I mean, I also think that, like, so obviously, look, the, the, the Republicans, I mean, the Democrats would not have passed it because they wouldn't have gotten, they, there's no 60-vote supermajority, right, in the Senate. Um, but 
um, they could have codified. They could have codified uh, Roe v. Wade. I mean, they couldn't. They couldn't necessarily codify Roe v. Wade, but they could get Republicans on the record voting against it, and then use that in attack ads. And that's always been one of the things I don't understand why Democrats don't do. I mean, abortion rights have consistently been supported by roughly two, in some form, by roughly two thirds of voters. And that obviously includes a lot of Republicans and swing voters. Um, you know, just get Republicans on the record voting against a woman's right to choose. And, and you know, and, and then use that against them in races where it matters in districts that are, you know, more purplish. But they just never even did that. And that's really weird for me to reconcile. And, and Malik, maybe you can jump in here, is that, you know, as as the only person on this platform right now with a uterus, um, sorry to offend you guys, is the only person here with a uterus. Hey, you don't know that. Yeah, that's I, what I, was, I was thinking, like, <laughs> that's very presumptive of you, Manila. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm the only person here with a uterus um, and has given birth to a live human being um, that I identify as a boy, as a son. Um, how does you he know, identify? Not a they. I, I don't let him choose. I don't let him choose. He's four. He's, he's a he. He's under my control, under my house. He's a he until he can. Until he's five. Yeah, until right. he's five, exactly. Yeah, right, we move right. back to California, and then he'll decide for me. Um, but, but me being a suburban mom, right, and being a reporter, when I look at the numbers and see that the Senate was so... A narrow, it could have gone either way, right? It was so narrow, so narrow. Uh, the lower chamber eh, looks pretty solid, right? Going to the Republicans. Like, I think that's pretty fair to say. I don't know how to reconcile the ballots because I feel like other suburban moms wouldn't be single issue voters where abortion would be like top of mind for them, right? Like they're more worried about there's a lot of NIMBYs, you know, not in my backyard where all these I, Section I 8 housing. I honestly don't think that those— They like, didn't swing I, it. I question, and I because I, I mentioned it last week, I would love to see an actual breakout, something that polls people to ask them, how did abortion factor into their vote for <laughs> right. specific candidates? We don't have We that. don't know, and the, that's the thing. What we have is people saying— The media is running away with the, the narrative, as they always do. They're saying and that say, abortion was one of the top issues, is but what based won it. on— what though? Right. So we're so even us right now, Ted. We're also assuming that abortion is what won for the Democrats. We don't actually know because nobody's actually posed that specific question. And for all the suburban moms out there like me, at least the ones I've talked to and the chat rooms I look into, and you know, I, I don't participate, but I, I look. They do not appear to be single issue voters, specifically on the row issue. That wasn't top of mind to them. So to me, I guess the only way I can look at this is that the single women are what kind of shifted the Senate, I think. Right. But then how do you but then how do you reconcile the lower chamber going red? That means no, no one's voting straight ticket or I mean, how? Well, we know there was a lot of ticket splitting, right, in this race. And and what you guys are saying is right. I mean, like, it's one thing to say, okay, well, 60, we know that 60% of exit poll 
Uh, people said that they don't want to ban abortion, but that doesn't mean that they care ab- about it enough to vote that to, to make that the basis of their vote or even part of the basis of their vote. We don't know that uh, there was much nationalization of this election at all. Uh, there wasn't really much of an attempt to do that, uh, you know, in a concerted way by either party. I mean, in the end, it might mean it might just be a bunch of random House and Senate races that all played out based on the the individual candidates and how they were perceived within their states and within their districts. And there's, you know, and it might not, it might not really mean anything, Um, you know, unlike say, you know, 1994, which I think did mean something because of the way that the race was, the, the, the midterms were nationalized by Gingrich. Um, that's, that's just, it may, it may be that we're just, you know, guessing and maybe there's nothing to guess. And you know what, Ted, one of the things that I, and part of this is because obviously I've worked on campaigns, I've dealt with polling, I've dealt with writing questions for polls and all of this, but I think something is being missed in the debate. And I was having the conversation with friends who are definitely involved in politics. And I asked them the question, I said, well, currently, like in the current Congress, what is the makeup, like Democrats versus Republican? And they didn't know. But the current makeup is 224 Democrats. It's 213 Republicans in the House. The majority, you win the majority when you get to 218. Democrats had four seats above the required, the requisite number to keep the majority. Republicans, I think they're looking now, are saying that Republicans may get an additional two seats beyond. So we're talking about maybe 220 um, to two. Whatever that other. Oh, so it's even closer. Yeah, but it was never. And and the point that I'm making this is that when we're talking about red wave, we talk, no one knows what the current makeup Congress is because you would be led to believe that oh well, Democrats have this huge majority. They have four seats above the threshold, like four seats above the. But threshold. But that's what I'm always screaming at the squad. Because, I mean, because it's like Joe Manchin has that one seat and he can basically sway, but they don't have it in him to do the same thing. Right. I mean, over and over again. I mean, was it the $15 an hour minimum wage? I mean, I can't think of anything with a pressured Biden on saying, we're not passing this if this is not going to be a part of it. Right. And, and the margins are very close. And so the margins will be close with the House as well. I think the biggest thing with the Senate, you know, I came on the show and I was always iffy when it comes to the Senate. Yeah. I did talk about Laxalt because Laxalt was a former governor, I mean, was a former AG, the son of a U.S. senator. I think his dad, oh, wow. somebody, grandfather was governor or something. So oh, he he's was got part, a pedigree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was a political guy, but he was also one of the ones that Trump endorsed. And on that issue of Trump endorsement, it it was different results depending on where you are. But I don't think they were able to make a a general statement, which is what people are saying. Oh, well, Trump just had a horrible night. Well, first of all, Trump endorsed Bulldog from New Hampshire. We were never, unless John Sununu was running for Senate, who is the current he ran for re-election as governor, but when he decided not to run for the seat because they wanted him to run for the seat, well, once Sununu said he was going to run for the governor, we never had a chance at New Hampshire. Right. So it didn't matter if Trump endorsed, if there was an establishment version versus yeah. Trump. We were never going to win New Hampshire. Like some of these states, we literally were just never going to win. And the bullishness that people had about Arizona, I never said that he would win Arizona. So I think that part of this is that, yes, all of the polling, the polling was moving in the direction of saying that, hey, 
Republicans are really poised to have her wet wave. It didn't turn out that way, but it didn't turn out that way in 2016 either. Because polls said that Hillary Clinton was going to beat Donald Trump. Ninety what ninety four percent or something on the night she was she night she lost. Their polls. Yeah, polls are projections. Polls, right? But they're projections, right? Yeah, and that's that's actually what I was getting ready to the point that I was um was asked Ted your comments on. Polls are projections, and so we need to first understand that polls are projections, and because they're projections, they are sometimes wrong. And what do you think about that, Tim? Well, well, Malik brings up two really interesting points. Uh, You know, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, like Trump also did pick some uh, winners that would not, I don't think would have won without him. For example, uh, Vance in Ohio, Um, you know, he was definitely a long shot candidate. Um, And uh, he, and, and, you know, he prevailed by, you know, a bigger margin than expected. Uh, he, you know, a lot of people had counted him out a month before the election. Herschel Walker. You can add him to the list. Herschel Walker, too. Yeah. And I mean, and so also, you know, but one about the polls, what's interesting is in 2016, the polls had a Democratic bias. But in 2020, I think there's there's literally more polling agencies that are Republican aligned um, now than there were in, in large in, in large part out of, it was a response a reaction to what happened in 2016. So everybody's looking at the aggregate polls like the you know like the real clear politics average of polls. So literally, yeah. So you're literally looking at there the aggregation now has more red in the mix than it used to, and I think that's why the that's why the polls were wrong in kind of the opposite direction this time. You know, I'm, I'm going to go to this article. I love this. Big Apple Mayor Eric Adams lambasted Democrats for having the wrong attitude when addressing top voter concerns in an op-ed on Sunday after months of blaming fears on crime perception, et cetera. Right here. Quote, New York is the safest big city in America, but this statistic means nothing to a mother mourning a child who lost on gun violence, Adam wrote in USA Today. Um, contract, contradicting past insistence that stats show crime fears are mostly a perception. Quote, voting is an act of emotional trust, not straightforward logic. It's about acknowledging people's needs, their emotions, their reality, then doing something about it, unquote. Um, This is Hisner added as he opined about Democrats losing working class voters. Um, Give me your take on this. I mean, Hosho barely won that race, despite the fact she's a Democrat and she's in New York. I mean, does Adam have a point here that basically all things being equal, Democrats are not necessarily hitting those main issues? And it's ironic that Adams is the one who's basically writing this op-ed. Give me your take on this. I mean, are you surprised at the electoral vote from the standpoint of the governor of New York that Hochul basically won it by such a small margin? Um, you know, yeah, it was surprising just because New Yorkers reflexively vote blue um, no matter what. Uh, yeah, but Hochul is, was kind of, she's only been in office for a year. She was, she was a lieutenant governor who ascended due to Cuomo's resignation. The state never really got to know her. And she didn't really hit the, she didn't really go on a charm offensive or make herself known during that year. I think she just basically, you know, she was a wonk and uh, she thought that working on bills or, you know, in sticking in, staying in Albany was enough. And then suddenly someone was like, oh, you know, you actually have to convince voters. And, uh, and, and, and she was like, oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. And that's part of my job. <laughs> right. Like, you're, you're kidding. Oh, damn. So, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, look, I mean, it's funny about Adams. 
I mean, he's literally objectively wrong about that. Um, uh, you know, the crime statistics are up in every category in New York City except for uh, except for uh, murder, but everything else is up. Um, there's there's more there's more break-ins. There's more robberies. I mean, Ted, he said it's the safest city in America. Huh? More subway platform <laughs> pushing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, certainly more of that. I mean, it may be the safest big city in America because of the, you know, per capita, right? Your personal chances of being victim, victimized by a crime. But it certainly doesn't feel that way. And in that sense, he does make a point about, you know, he brings up a point about people's emotions. But, you know, on the other hand, how people feel doesn't come from nothing. You know, it's, it's, it's also... It's a combination of things. I mean, people don't, you know, maybe homeless people don't pose a threat, but seeing encampments of homeless people is seedy and it makes people feel unsafe. Uh, you know, maybe a, a, a boarded up storefront that's been boarded up for six for the last six years is not does not pose a direct threat to anybody in the neighborhood. But again, it has that same effect of making you feel like you live in a slum and that makes you feel unsafe. So you know, all this stuff comes together. Graffiti doesn't hurt anybody, but when graffiti, you know, it, all of that stuff adds, you know, it, it sort of adds up to the 70s are back. And uh, I used to say the 80s were back. I think it's more like the 70s, which is even worse. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think he should spend a little bit less time in the clubs, a little more, little more time uh, out in, in real New York City talking to actual people. And, you know, and I think they could tell him some stories. And you know what, Ted, that's, you know, Jamal's question and what we're talking about with the crime to kind of back up to what Manila was saying. I have a and I may I may never get the answer to it until I actually pay for Edison research polling. But <laughs> I, I just have a hard time reconciling the yes, polls going into the election, how somehow abortion superseded crime and some of the issues, like the real issues. Like to me, I have I have a hard time believing that somehow that one issue, abortion, superseded all of the other issues like crime, inflation, gas prices, and somehow that became the thing that voters voted on. Maybe, you know, I could be a little naive or something, but I just have a hard time believing that what we're seeing on our TV screens with this crime problem, that somehow that wasn't a larger factor. But the thing is, because we don't have anything to gauge, but I, I, I'm a little iffy about that, Ted, that somehow abortion was a more, even though that 60, because I saw that 60% number, and what it says is that they were unhappy or angry about the Supreme Court's decision. But I'm just having a hard time believing that, that more voters were concerned about that than crime and inflation. It's purely instinct, but, and, it's, and it's apocryphal. But, I, you know, all the women I've talked to who you know, are Democratic voters, uh, they, if any of them had been tempted to blow off voting, uh, they didn't because they were so furious about uh, the Dobb decision. Uh, they were deterred. They were, I think there's a sense among many people that, you know, this was a basic fundamental freedom that they took for, that they took for granted and that this hearkened a handmaid's tale uh, dystopia that they just couldn't believe that the country was going in that direction. And the Republicans played into it uh, by, 
you know, immediately codifying very extreme, no exceptions rules in so many states. And I think I think it really motivated Democratic turnout. That's one of the things, though. It's actually it's been misrepresented. I as at last check, I think maybe there's only one. But every state, every red state, they have exceptions for rape and incest. That's like on the books. They have exceptions. Even in Ohio, um, they have exceptions for rape. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not... Um, life of the mother. Yeah, life yeah. of the mother. That's, I, I got that wrong. Not rape or incest. Right, yeah, right, not rape right. Or incest. So they do have exceptions for like life of the mother or something like that, which I, for me, that is a reasonable position because I'm kind of iffy on rape and incest. But there aren't, it isn't as if they aren't any exceptions. It just depends on what you're, like if you think rape and incest should be an exception, which I don't, but... Um, you know, and I understand a lot of people do, but for the life of the mother, and I think that's called ectopic pregnancy. Ectopic has to do with it's like teeth and bones. I mean, this is that type of stuff. Yeah. Ectopic. I mean, ectopic. I got to be honest. I, that's not enough for me. <laughs> like the, the life of the mother stuff or the, the life, life of the mother, of the mother? is not enough. I mean, I meaning, meaning. For me, some people, the rape and incest, they want that exception too. Sure. And I, well, I think that. that exception should be there. I think um, abortion should be legal. But, but not life of the mother? No, no, no. I'm saying. Oh. In addition I'm saying, to life of the mother, oh. yeah, should I'm, be I'm rape saying, and incest. Yeah. And, I, I think, look, personally, I am, I don't want to say an extremist on issues of abortion where I think it should be allowed. Um, and look, if many of those women are like me, they look at it and say, this country has gone backwards. Now, I guess the question and your point is, is that, does that override inflation and some of the other items? Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, you may have a situation where it's like all things been equal, like Ted was saying. Okay, well, I may not have voted under normal circumstances, but I'm going to go and put my vote in now because I don't necessarily like the way this direction went. I Meaning, I can kind of see that if it's playing on the margins, um, but I can't see, I, I think I agree with you that I can't see it playing more than inflation. But you know, the Republicans, the racist thing didn't seem to be, a, and, and I don't mean that in a, because that's typical, yeah. Democrats typically win on, on that, Republicans no, right. as racist yeah. and, or as Biden was doing, going into the like extremists. They don't put so, you in chains. Like even that, <laughs> like I wonder how much that Did this extremist, like do voters said, okay, well, we didn't, well, we're not going to go the red wave route because Republicans are too ra- racist or extremes. Like, yeah. I just don't know. I don't know it's that Biden's— It's unexplainable. I don't know that Biden's argument, and Ted, you can jump in here, but I don't know that Biden's framing of, you know, basically, he effectively was saying a vote for Democrats is a vote for democracy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, he, said, like, he literally said that. Like, I he don't, said democracy was at stake. Right. Yeah. I, don't, I don't buy that either. I guess the question is— no, uh, why? I didn't buy it either. Yeah. I guess the question is then why did Democrats overperform then? I mean, it had to have been something. I don't think we can explain it. I, I just think it's one of those I, things. I don't know. I think it's probably like a Trump referendum in some ways. You think so? I do. That, I do. Well, there's also, there's oh, also a structure. Sorry, there's, a, there's structural things that we, we really should not ignore. I mean, elections are totally different animals now. It is a lot of states have same-day voter registration. Uh, you know, two weeks of early voting makes it, mu- including on weekends, makes it much more convenient to vote. It used to be like, you know, only on Tuesday. And uh, if you had to be at work at 8 a.m. And, and work till, you know, 7 p.m. Uh, overtime, you might not make it to the polls before it closed or you just be too tired to vote. Um, and there's mail-in ballots. Uh, so it's just become a lot easier to vote. And, uh, and the be. question is, how of does course. that, yeah. how does that, how does that play you know, the question is, does that, is that a, is that, 
ease, does that benefit Democrats or does it benefit Republicans? I, I don't really I think, know. I think that benefits democracy. But there's Agreed. a whole ton yeah, of other point. other issues, Ted, to your point, of how people get on the ballot to, in the first place. And that is my biggest complaint about you know, the the supposed U.S. democracy, because it's not democratic about how you can get on the ticket in the first place. It's like the rules aren't the same for different parties in different states. Like the Green Party vote, what's his name, Matthew Ho? Matthew Ho down in North Carolina, he got massively screwed by the DNC or maybe it was the DCCC, I forget, but he had to file a lawsuit to get on there for, you know, how what dirty tactics they were using to get him off after he got onto the ballot officially. And they were trying to boot him because they assumed people on the green, you know, that would vote right. green should would go Democrat otherwise. So they wanted to avoid, you know, the, the Warnock-Walker situation. Bernie um, said, what is he talking to? The system is rigged, isn't that what well, it is. Well, I mean, is. think about the amount of money that they dump into various candidates. I mean, whether you're doing you know, about this ads. Is the most expensive midterm election on the books, like $16.9 billion dollars with a B, with a B, guys. And and part of that problem, like part of the thing I'm having an issue with as of this weekend, and I'm not a big Bitcoin person and crypto person. It's collapse. But this FTX uh, bankruptcy and collapse came right after the the midterm elections. And now there's there's signs of this being attached to the Democrat Party. Now there's all, yes, because the FTX, the guy that, I'm going to say I assume that he embezzled all of this, all this crypto, but he basically, it seems like according to whatever evidence is out there right now publicly is the FTX guy whose name is Bankman, his Bankman Freed. Yeah, Bankman Freed, which is almost <laughs> like so on the nose. fake like bond villain, Yo. like bank villain, right? So he's, he's this crypto guy that was like raising money for Ukraine and then he would turn around and take that crypto money and funnel it back to the Democrat Party in these midterms, in these particular midterms. And he doesn't file bankruptcy until after the elections. That's really weird to me. We're going to have to get somebody on to discuss. Ted, I don't know if you had if you followed that at all, but I don't know if you if anybody. No, I, I, I have I have followed it. I, I did not follow the Democratic, the Democratic Party, Ukraine connection thing. No. Yeah, that guy funneled money from the crypto exchange back to the Democrat. He donated like $150 million. That's right up there with George Soros. Soros. Yeah, Soros. (laughs) With that much money out. Soros money. But the sad thing is it's other people's money. It's other people's crypto. I mean, I gotta be honest. All of this is problematic if you're thinking about the integrity of an election. I mean, you think about the money the corporations could put into elections, into candidates. The overwhelming majority of the side get the most citizens united. And you know what? This backfired on the Republicans. Oh, and by the way, even the... um, Oh, what is it? What is it? When the candidates get your, like the DCCC, uh, or for that matter, the the Senate thing, even they were putting out things going after certain candidates if those candidates were going after um, incumbents. I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's all of that stuff plays a role into it. I don't think Republicans did any nonsense like this. This was more on the Democratic this side. This was on the Democratic yeah, side. Yeah, whether you want to talk about superdelegates, you had the situation where they were calling candidates, telling them to get out the race. I think this was, what, an election ago? This is just normal hat at this point? Well, look I mean, at what they did in 2016. They cleared the field for Hillary Clinton. Yes, they oh, did. Yeah. The, and, <laughs> and do we remember who she was not burning? Do you remember who else she was, she was running against? Martin O'Malley. Oh, yeah. Remember the former former mayor, and I think he was the governor also. No one remembers Martin O'Malley, but also talking about a corrupt system. You know, this was back in my Obama days, my Obama, I wear the Obama (laughs) cape days. (laughs) Right, right. 
Hillary Even Clinton. Even wore a tan suit and everything. Talking about <laughs> system. I started believing about the system being rigged in 2008 when I attended the Rules and Bylaw Committee meeting at the Omni Shore here. Uh-huh. The Rules and the Democrats, the Democrats Rules and Bylaw Committee meeting was set to settle the issue of Michigan and Florida. 2008, Hillary Clinton, there was a decision to, because Florida and Michigan moved up their primary dates, that they were not going to count the votes in Florida and Michigan. Really? Remember, Hillary Clinton then wanted to, once she was losing, she wanted to then count the votes in Florida and Michigan. So they had to have a meeting, and it was called the Rules and Bylaw Committee meeting, where it was ultimately decided that she couldn't get those votes because they had agreed that neither one of them will get the votes from there. But if they had, you know, and Alexis Herman and many other like big time Democrats were all on the committee, but they ultimately decided not to. In which case Obama wins. Which, because which, that's what it was. If yeah. they had, you know, prevailed, Hillary Clinton would have gotten Michigan and Florida wow. and been the president. Wow. Wow. I don't know. Do you remember that, Ted? <laughs> I do. I, I do remember that. It was a very it was a typical Democratic Party insider move. I mean, they they really they really need to get rid of superdelegates. Yes. Um, they I mean, the Republicans don't have them. And um, if they did, Trump would have never gotten through the primaries. At least I, I don't think so. I think there's an argument to get rid of caucuses, even though they tended to benefit Bernie, who I loved. Um, I still yeah, think Iowa, New Hampshire, because we only is it just two? Is it just no, two I states with caucuses? Two. Okay. I, I could no, the, wasn't Nevada a caucus also? Yeah, oh, Nevada. Nevada. Yep, yep, yep. I, I, yeah, I remember the Nevada one because the Nevada one looked very sketchy. That's the one where the chair got thrown. Yeah, right, right. The imaginary chairs being thrown. I mean, and it's. Oh, do you remember that? They said Sanders was throwing chairs. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, do you remember that? Man, I went to work the very next day and the owner of the company is like, you guys need to cut it out. Talking oh, to me. Oh, oh Brony, Bernie bros. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about you Bernie bros out there throwing chairs. And I was like, dude, that didn't happen. He was like, well, I heard the reporting that you guys were throwing chairs. I was like, are you, are you, what video did you see of that? Well, I didn't see a video of it. Okay. Now you're telling me that you didn't see any video of anybody throwing chairs despite the fact that that place had videos all over the place. It's well, like, come as on. the kids say, if it ain't on Insta, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. <laughs> Ted, let me ask you this. Before we close out, what do you think this effect is going to have with Republicans taking the House and Democrats keeping the Senate? Or do you think gridlock, it's going to have an gridlock, effect at all? Gridlock, gridlock, gridlock. Nothing is going to happen. Uh, you know, nothing of substance is going to get passed except military spending. We can count on that. That will, there's, you know, both parties can always uh, agree on the need to blow things up. Uh, and <laughs> but But in terms of, but in terms of uh, anything that would be, uh, you know, I think also you're going to have some serious budget deadlocks. I mean, yeah. there could de- we could definitely be looking at government shutdowns. Um, you know, there's uh, the 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 president's going to veto everything that crosses his desk. But that's what's going to ask. Is there anything that the Biden administration would agree on that Republicans would agree on? I mean, infrastructure is the first thing that comes to mind, but I'm not sure if there's anything else that fits that bill. You know, I I, I used to say infrastructure, but I think. I don't even know that they can agree on that anymore. Uh, you know, I think it's it's human infrastructure counts, Ted. <laughs> right, exactly. It's it's warfare now, and uh, you know, at this point, um, certainly on the Republican side, you know, the Republican voter base is in no mood to hear that their representatives did anything with the Democrats, even if it's something that they would personally love. 
which is horrible. That's just, I think it's like they just want, you know, go there, own the libs, uh, you know, stop anything the Democrats want, even if they're, you know, voting in favor of, of blue skies and fresh air, just like, get, <laughs> you know, just stop it. I really think that's, that's the mentality. Of these. Well, under that model, nothing gets done. Like well, literally yeah. nothing yeah, gets yeah, done. Yeah. Under that just model. like everything Trump uttered, whether it was, you know, true or, or whatever, yeah. it doesn't matter. The, the media and the left side of Congress was going to be hair on fire against it. That's unfortunate. I mean, how does a government function like this, Ted? We don't. Well, it, it doesn't. I mean, basically, look, this is like when you, when a marriage goes bad and, you know, and, and, there, and like, the, you know, the two, the two spouses just can't talk to each other about anything anymore. Just the fact that they're opening their mouth makes the other one just hate them and, and just shut their ears, right? I mean, that's what's going on now. I mean, it's, it's pure dysfunction. Uh, you know, we have, you know, people talk about polarization. They look at the 50-50 split and they conflate them and they say, oh, well, you know, that's, Polarization. Uh, uh-uh. the fifty-fifty split isn't, po- and polarization are two different things. But when they come together, you end up with massive dysfunction. Because if you have like, uh, you know, polarization, but you know, one side has a, a an overwhelming majority, things will get done. That side will get things done. But when you have the power constantly shifting every two to four years between two sides that just absolutely despise each other. It's just a, a policy of revanchism. They're constantly, you know, just thinking about like, well, you know, you you guys blocked Robert Bork, so we're going to block Merrick Garland. You guys blocked Merrick Garland, so we're going to block your, you know, so it just keeps going and on, going like that forever. Do you think there's a way out? Meaning, is there a magical door to get out of this situation? Because I don't see one. Not, no, there's no magical door. I mean, either either the whole thing comes crashing down or somehow you know, someone comes up with a new way of appealing to voters, you know, in the way that like FDR did, Uh, you know, someone who presides over a uh, sort of a political realignment that changes everything. Wow. Ted, always appreciate you joining us, man. And yeah, that's, yeah, I don't see a magical door. I don't see a way out. And not seeing a way out is kind of disturbing because I don't necessarily see how government functions like this. I mean, even budget stuff. Like when is the last time we had an actual budget? That gets passed for... On time. Yeah. And for the year. Not just for like this kind of stopgap. Okay, we're going to do this for one month. And then we're going to come back and have a conversation about it again. Okay, now we're going to get it for two weeks. Like, even that's dysfunctional. We're coming up on... Another one. Yeah, December. That's the date for the... Yeah, that's the end of the date for the stopgap. This is aggravating. Ted, thank you, my man. Ted Rawl is a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Rawl and read his cartoons and articles at Rawl.com. Wait, Ted, one last question. Has this happened before? Have we been in this position before where this, with this level... gridlock? Yeah, with this level of gridlock, this little um, amount of political animosity in regards to the sides where we eventually worked ourselves out. Well, you know, don't forget, uh, there was a U.S. Senator, Sumner, who was basically beaten to death on the floor of the U.S. What? Senate. What? Um, yeah, uh, basically, um, he was an abolitionist, and his, uh, and then, and he was uh, talking against slavery, and uh, one of, and, and a pro-slavery senator whose name escapes me, uh, took offense and went after him with his cane. Uh, he he pounded him into you know oblivion, and then a year later he died of his injuries. So he basically killed him. He- 
beat a man to death on the floor of the Senate defending the honor of slavery? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yes, exactly. For impugning the, uh, impugning the honor of the South. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the dysfunction that you're looking at is very reminiscent of the 1850s, where we had like our, our worst presidents, right? Buchanan and Fillmore um, and Pierce. These, there's just like, I mean, a little unfair to Pierce, maybe. But it was like a period where basically everybody, both parties absolutely despised each other. Um, there was uh, no respect whatsoever, um, no trust, and, and nothing really got done. And everything, and then the election of 1860, which people kind of forget, ruined everything. It was, a, it was the only four-way race in American history. And um, so there were people, people remember Stephen Douglas. Uh, and Lincoln, but they forget about John Bell and John C. Breckinridge, the other two candidates. But anyway, the 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 impact the uh, the upshot was no Southern state cast any votes for the winner of the election, Abe Lincoln. And Whoa. so, so no wonder, <laughs> like no Southern no Southern state voted for Lincoln, right? So so of course they were like, well, we're not in. This is their country. This is his country. And it's not literally, not our president, right? Wow. So, um, so I think, you know, we are, it feels, you know, it but looks like, a civil from war. what I've read, feels like, that's right. Uh, you know, I don't think that we're headed towards a civil war, but something big has to happen. Either, you know, either it has to get better because of someone with a big, a big smart idea or you know, one of the parties has to split. I mean, I've, I think both parties really should split. Um, you know, Democrats could split between their progressive and their corporate wings into new, two new parties. It would make more sense. Um, and you'd get something closer to, uh, to a democracy if you had more parties. But something big has to happen. It could be bad. It could be good. But it has to be big. Overturn Citizens United. That's what I Preston say. Preston Brooks, that's his name. Representative Preston Brooks was the one who hit hit him over the head with his metal-topped cane. Oh, and damn. beat the guy to death in a well of Congress. Nobody did anything? They just watched one, one man beat another man right? to death? Well, as I'm reading on the Senate, our Senate uh, history webpage, yeah, they, he, he struck him again and again. Okay. And again. All right. And people um, just watched. But he was, so what it was, he was eventually, Sumner was carried away. Um, it took that long? Right. So he didn't die on the floor, well, but he know. was carried He was carried away so by there his, were no no smartphones back then. So nope. there was like the Senate floor caricaturist drawing it. Yeah. Ted, is this, in your, gets, gets is this in your history books when you became a cartoonist you had to learn about that? This is so grim. <laughs> it's just like a picture of one man beating another man with a cane and, and <laughs> drawn. Cartoonist back then. Yeah. Ted, man, I— oh, the reason I ask you questions like that, because I know you know, right? <laughs> you know that stuff. Like, it's like in 1846, so-and-so so happened. And then this happened. Yeah. And then that happened. Okay. I did not know that. I've been learned. A man beat a man to death on the floor of the Senate. Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl is a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Rawl and read his cartoons and articles on Rawl.com. Ted, thank you, my man. I appreciate this. Wow. I didn't know any. Did you know that? No, I've never heard of that. Like, that's. Very weird. Getting hit over the head with cane on the Senate so floor. That the Senate implies floor. It's, a, it's an old man. Yeah. If he's walking with yeah, a cane, with the cane, then right. you're old. But, but nobody. But he didn't die. 
but nobody but does still, anything. Yeah, there's physical violence. Well, he died a year later after his injuries. What is the duel? The ones who did oh with the gun? Yeah, it's like I'm gonna take you outside and yeah, we're gonna have this shoot off. Was it Amon Burr and? I forget. But what? But yes, but yes, yeah. the that's what they duel. used to do. So it's good they they don't do that anymore. Yes, let's not do that. I am shocked. But I, I'm look. I get the anger, right? <laughs> but nobody does anything. They just watch one old man beat another man to death. Wow, that's amazing. Ted Raw, man, he knows that stuff. I want to thank our engineers, singular. I want to thank our producers. Plural. I want to thank Malik Abdul, Manila Chan. My name is Jamal Thomas. The Rumblers. Rumblers, people who listen on the radio, we will get to your calls tomorrow. Um, had a full show today. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines back in the morning. You guys have a good one. Fault Lines.